All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. This is Twist Gaming presenting you the Great Game Hunters podcast. I'm Matt, and I am joined here with Josh. And Josh is here, and we're also here with Fen. Hello. So today we will be discussing the ins and outs of the Kingdom Death Monster, the Phoenix. And the Phoenix is quite an interesting one compared to some of the other monsters we've talked about so far, uh, such as the lion and the antelope and the butcher in our previous uh, podcasts. Uh, So first off, we're going to go a little bit into the lore of the Phoenix. So Fen, do you want to start us off with that? Oh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, obviously the Phoenix from Kingdom Death is based on the Greek mythology of the Phoenix, um, very Western kind of thing. But we do have um, uh, Eastern Phoenixes as well. Sort of the Phoenix is a very classic kind of creature, traditionally depicted as um, a creature associated with the sun, a bird that uh, dies in a, a, a lot of flames, burns up and is reborn. But the Kingdom Death Phoenix is kind of quite different. It doesn't It doesn't really have that whole death and rebirth thing explicitly within its own life cycle but you know we can sort of speculate a bit on that instead uh, the, this phoenix controls time manipulates time on a, a variety of different scales um it's uh, it's definitely one of the most interesting core monsters and it seems to be very integral to the entire setting as a whole uh i mean i find it uh, quite fascinating how closely tied the dung beetle knight is to the phoenix in fact like the dung beetle knight would not exist without the phoenix um and also the whole concept of, of of rebirth with with the phoenix and its time control so i mean how, how do you guys feel because where do you feel the actual phoenix part of this creature comes into play i think it's more taking the traditional phoenix lines of uh death and rebirth of the phoenix and kind of almost transitioning that back to the survivors but in a little bit of a different method uh, such as aging some survivors out of existence and then unmaking the newborn so it's more manipulating everyone else but itself because i mean to the best of my knowledge there's not too much going on with the phoenix in terms of it controlling its own aging Uh, correct me if i'm wrong there well i'd say you're you're certainly not wrong but i have read an interesting theory Uh, i know many people have sort of suggested this uh that would be what if this phoenix doesn't rebirth by dying and coming back but instead time manipulation it dies it slides back down its own timeline and goes off on a separate branch if this is the case then there's a suggestion that um every phoenix you encounter is the same single phoenix and the golden god of a thousand years the golden eyed god would be like the natural end of that particular phoenix so that's sort of one possibility i mean there's probably more than one phoenix but it would be interesting to think if these things die then they kind of abandon the timeline they're on and go off, uh, you know, in an alternate timeline, alternate universe, branch split. That's a very interesting theory. I kind of like that concept where each Phoenix is, in fact, the same one in a different timeline or parallel timeline, however you want to look at it that way. That's a whole other discussion because that uh, time travel thing goes on for, you know, many different branches there. But Josh, how do you feel about it? The Phoenix is interesting, or otherwise known as the Time Lord Chicken. Um, He's... uh... Yeah, he's got he's got some classical Phoenix things with him with the reboot, but it's all through this time manipulation instead of classic, just someone dies and is reborn, um, which makes him interesting. Um, but yeah, he's. I wish I knew more about the lore and all the little ties in. I know he ties in with a lot of different things. I just I haven't seen it all put together. 
to, to give me that grand picture of everything. Yeah, he's certainly the flagship monster of the core game. I mean, it's the single largest monster in the entire thing. And even when you hunt it, this thing feels more like a boss than any of the other monsters. In fact, even compared to some of the expansion monsters, the Phoenix feels more like a boss. Uh, I know the, the Dungby tonight and the Sunstalker are kind of on the same tier, but they don't feel as they have character, but they, they feel like individuals of a species where the Phoenix really does sort of have a lot of personality all of its own. It does sort of feel like one entity. Definitely, especially compared to the uh, the way it acts and behaves and its uh, attacks and reactions and everything compared to the other uh, quarry monsters from the core game. It really is a, a step apart from everything else. And you're right, compared to even, you know, some of like the Watcher and other late game uh, monsters as well, Nemesis, uh, the Phoenix does feel like its own special challenge in and of itself. Indeed. Um, I say other sort of bits and pieces I've picked up with regards to lore is the Phoenix tends to roost in the Abyssal Woods. So we can only speculate whether the Phoenix is going to be involved at all in the Abyssal Woods campaign. But uh, it's from the Dung Beetle expansion. It talks about how the Phoenix used to fly around and spend time in the plains. And eventually it moved across into the Abyssal Woods um, and, and started staying there instead. And the Dung Beetles followed it. Um, and that's when they started taking on traits. And we'll talk about that in detail when we get to the Dung Beetle Knights. But uh, there, I think there are a few other scattered hints about how the Phoenix lives and, and, and so on around the, the place. Um, who knows? Who knows if the Abyssal Woods will give us more information? It would be nice. That is one thing I find very interesting with Kingdom Death is that uh, everything is linked together in this overarching, you know, universe but it's very unclear as to how certain things are linked together and the information is there but kind of buried for a lot of it and you have to infer a lot of other stuff and it it's pretty cool because it gives you kind of that same almost helpless feeling the survivors have when you're trying to interpret how all everything ties together in the game but there definitely is a lot more back thought to everything than is uh i guess initially perceived when you're playing the game yes this certainly is so, shall we uh, get on with this hunt then and move on into the hunt deck, the hunts? All right, let's Sound, get on to the hunt. Sounds good to me, and I know the hunt here is a little interesting because it gives some opportunities for some pretty interesting things to happen uh, to your survivors. Uh, so, Josh, what is the uh, first hunt card that we're going to be looking at for the Phoenix? All right, I don't have these in any certain order, but uh, let's go to Fertile Fields first. Um, the survivors approach... A f- uh, Weather in field, littered with phoenix droppings, twisted up to the rocks, some acanthus plants grow vigorously, while others wither and disintegrate before their eyes. Um, this is where you guys can get some uh, brain damage, understanding, and get some fresh acanthus. Um, and possibly even some poop. So, Fen, what is the uh, mucculent droppings, as the poop is referred to here, uh, effectively used for, gear-wise? Oh, that's a damn good question. Um... I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Yes, I do. Yeah, um, it is used in the Feather Shield. I don't remember if it's used in any of the weapon crafting stuff. That was what I was wondering, because um, that's the other location where uh, Phoenix gear is used. But, uh, yeah, it's, I assume it's used to glue together the shield, because the Feather Shield is two small feathers and a mucculent dropping. So, I mean, I don't think I'd really want to hold that shield. You don't want the poop shield? Well, uh, it must be an interesting smell. That's how it works. It drives the enemy away based off of the stench. 
And uh, yeah, we'll see with a lot of these hunt events. There's a lot of a lot of bird poop. Yes, yeah. There seems to be quite a fecal obsession with the uh, the phoenix itself there, which is kind of interesting because I know in a lot of other lore the phoenix is uh, was it usually the tears or the blood or something that has some uh, properties to it, magical properties. And this it seems as if the poop is where the magic lies. So since we're talking about poop, let's go to next the poop. Let's talk about the next card. It's filth from the sky. Um, it's a straggler roll, and then whoever's straggler gets covered in poop. Um, that could regrow a limb, which is cool. It's one of the options on there. Yeah, to be completely honest, this one isn't too bad. Normally being a straggler sucks. But this one, you know, 50% chance of either getting a uh, uh, some more mucilant droppings um, with the penalty of the uh, priority target token, you know, uh, or even regrowing a limb, um, which is sort of part of that property that Phoenix Poop seems to have of uh, changing time or accelerating it undoing it slowing it down and so on yeah so far these hunt events are starting off on the fairly beneficial side of things but we'll see how that changes in a little bit Uh, there's some interesting mechanics i'm looking forward to talking about here such as the unmake one but uh, i would understand if you want to save that one for near the end josh yeah let's go to a glimpse next a massive shadow passes over the survivors they turn their gaze up in time to catch a glimpse of the uh, shape of the phoenix and he disappears um and this is a time drag or a time slip depending on what you roll um either making you have to roll more on the hunt table or you can actually gain a level of hunt xp which is kind of interesting with this card because it's a 50 50 shot the 150 percent chance is gaining one level of hunt xp two brain damage but that's not that big of a deal but then the other one is rolling three times on the hunt table so that can be very problematic, uh, especially if it's a longer hunt as well. All right, next is Recurring Nightmare. Um, so survivors are picked up and placed on the Overwhelming Darkness, um, and they trigger Overwhelming Darkness event. And then uh, if the monster was between them and Overwhelming Darkness, so they skipped over it, they are instead ambushed by the monster and start to show down immediately. And that triggers Overwhelming Darkness even if you already triggered Overwhelming Darkness, Correct. Correct. So never a good thing doubling up on that. So better to get that earlier on later, but then being ambushed if you're fighting an earlier level Phoenix is a pain as well. So I mean, probably best case scenario for this card is fighting a level two or three Phoenix and uh, getting that as one of your first uh, hunt events. So you kind of skip a bunch of the hunt board. Yes, it continues the theme we're seeing with quite a few of these cards where there's either something very good happens or something very bad happens and there's not that much in between all right next is uh wind tunnels which i actually like these cards um so it's gusting wind threatens to push the survivors back the survivors lock arms and struggle to move forward you roll a d10 and add all the survival's base strength if the result is 10 plus move forward on the hunt board as normal otherwise move the survivors two space back so this is always one that i was slightly confused about so if we move back on the hunt board do we re-roll the events that we've done already or how does that work 100 percent um, so when you redo a space, the card is missing. If it's an empty space, you just do a random hunt event. Okay, that's what I thought. So you're going to be doing essentially two more random hunt events there. Yep. But I like the mechanic of adding characters' attributes to a role as a team. I, I wish this was in more places of the game. Absolutely, I agree. Um, this is a kind of mechanic, I think, that would add more thought to the hunt phase if it was present, because... Uh, more 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 prevalent because you sort of you've got this situation where it's beneficial to go and hunt the phoenix 
with certain attributes and certain sections and as we go further on we'll see there's other things you want to have when you hunt the phoenix to get through the hunt phase so yeah i would like um more of a hunt where strength is relevant and you you know you know that hunting a certain monster you're gonna have to do maybe some strength tests or perhaps something involving speed and you can kind of go well i'm not going to take this chap along because he's not very strong i'm going to take her along because she's got very high speed or good accuracy or something um so yeah yeah it is it is a good mechanic um and it's uh it's one that really could be used more maybe it will be all right so the next card we have is bird brained the phoenix fussily gathers material for its temporary nest you roll a d10 even the phoenix moves two spaces forward on the hunt board if it's odd the phoenix moves two spaces back um if the phoenix lands or passes over the survivor's current hunt space they're ambushed so yet yeah. another one that manipulates the phoenix or the space position on the hunt board as well as uh, providing an opportunity for the phoenix to ambush the survivors absolutely uh this also has the risk of the, uh, the phoenix bouncing off the end of the board which will change in 1.5 i think but um it's uh, at the moment. It's one of those things that doesn't make you think twice before you go after the higher level phoenixes. Yeah, and I'm interested with the 1.5 change for moving off the hunt board. And is it war room that prevents that? War if that's going to get a change or not? If that mechanic's going to go away? Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, they did say they weren't going to do much tweaking with a lot of the expansions, but I really do feel it'd be nice if they would, because there is stuff like war room that will need to be looked at. All right, so next up we have Fateful Feather. Survivors pass a ruined settlement at its center and altar holds a feather. It glows, illuminate, illuminates the glowy, uh, the, I'm sorry, I can't read today, the ghostly image of frozen worshippers. Each survivor rolls d d10, straggler roll. Straggler instantly forgets the sum of their life, sets the survival's weapon proficiency and hunt XP to zero. Survivor may gain benefits of age again, remove all disorders and fighting arts, gain one tail feather, phoenix resource, if any survivors has the hour rings, they may spend two survivals to save the straggler and ignore the event. Well, a... go on. Go ahead. Go ahead, Finn. Oh, I was going to say, this one I like. This is another one that has a bit of an intelligent decision to it when you know what's going on. If you're going to fight Phoenix, after the first one, an hour's ring is a very beneficial tool to take along. And this gives you a nice decision of you draw this and you, ha- you can look at a survivor and go, actually, you know what? He's completed his weapon mastery. Fantastic. I don't mind him being reset. I can take advantage of that. Um, or you might be like, oh, God, this one we didn't want to get hit, um, you know, and you can prevent it by spending survival. So this is really good design. This is the kind of hunt events that I like. Yeah, I was going to hint on a similar uh, note there, basically saying that this is a good hard reset for a character that you've achieved some weapon masteries for, who's got a lot of good plus stats that's near the end of their age, uh, the end of their life cycle there, and you can hard reset them back to the beginning. And uh, you don't necessarily mind if they lose some of their disorders and fighting arts because you get to keep their bonus stats as well. But yeah, the hours ring is definitely beneficial there, so you can be the the judge on whether or not you want the survivor to actually go through that, uh, just because it is still slightly random because of the straggler effect. Indeed. All right, next up we have On Make, which we mentioned earlier. A static fills the air. Our reality quivers around them, bends around the survivor. Objects spontaneously deteriorate, while others appear to sharpen in their field of vision. Each survivor must nominate one gear in their gear grid. Um, 50% chance that the piece of gear falls apart, or uh, 50% chance that if it's a weapon, it gets plus two strength tokens, or if it's armor, it gets plus two armor. 
So uh, before we do start, Josh, are you, are you okay there? Do you need us to innovate pictographs for you? That maybe I'm just there. Right. I th- this is one of those cards again. There is a little bit of strategy to it. Um, basically. If you're going to go hunting a phoenix, because of this card, I'm of the opinion that you take all those junky bone weapons you've got lying around from the start that you don't use anymore, you use them to fill up red affinities, and you target those with this if unmate gets drawn. Um, it, just basically, then, you've got a chance of either gaining two strength tokens, which is nice, or the gear becomes the bone that you had, and all of a sudden, you've got an extra resource out of something that's now defunct. So, this is... It's a, it's a niche case, but it's something you kind of want to bear in mind because if you had a grid filled with nothing but amazing stuff and you get hit by this, you could be very upset. So consider underbuilding your gear slightly uh, with stuff that you're sort of, you don't mind losing and you'd like the resources from. Can you use this to get rid of cursed gear on a 6 plus? I don't believe so. I believe gear is uh, cursed gear. There's, you can't get rid of it under any circumstances. Just because a lot of it has the other keyword, and it says if it's an other keyword, destroy it. Yeah, there's a lot of cursed gear without the other keyword as well, so uh, I don't think so, but maybe that's something that could be put to the the rules team to ask about exactly. But I would say, uh, as somebody who's currently saddled with a cursed item that I really wish I didn't have, um, you know, I I don't think you could get rid of it that way. I don't think that's the intent. Otherwise, you could... You could try and undo the curse from uh, from the Kingsman or stuff. Yeah, that, that would be the idea. And then the last one, my, my favorite hunt event card, uh, Time Flows Backwards. Uh, blinding Light, accompanied by a bone-crushing vacuum, rushes over the survivors. All survivors lose one level of hunt XP for each level of the quarry. If any survivors have no hunt XP, they disappear, they are dead, no one remembers they existed. If all survivors still exist, you roll a random hunt event. Uh, you're kind of familiar with this one, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, we've had a TPK just from this one card. So this gives you the other rule for fighting the Phoenix, which is every survivor that goes out needs to have at least as much hunt XP as the level of the Phoenix you're fighting. Don't take newbies on the Phoenix fight. Definitely not, no. It's Again, it's a good card, and like I said, I think this is a pretty good hunt deck. It can feel very punishing when you go into it blind, and you don't know what's going to happen. But when you're familiar with what the Phoenix does on the hunt, there's a lot of opportunities you can take advantage of, um, and that's and some meaningful decisions that you can make. So, I mean, I got thumbs up for the, the Phoenix hunt events. I actually prefer this over the Screaming Antelope ones, for definite. Um, I still kind of like the White Lion ones more, but that's because I love killing that cub. But otherwise, as a whole, this is a very solid, very good set of hunt events. Yeah, the uh, in my opinion as well, the Screaming Antelope feels a little bit like more of a trudge on the hunt just because it's so much of, I run away, I'm scared of you. And the Phoenix is really just bouncing all around the board, making you bounce around the board, and then you know unmaking your gear, unaging you. It's, it's quite interesting. They're very... A bunch of very different mechanics in the hunt for this one that keeps it uh, unique. Yeah, it has a good flavor to it. You do feel like you're pushing towards a very powerful creature that time is distorting as you go nearer. Um, it, you could imagine this in a film or a, a you know a show of some kind being depicted. It would look incredible. You know, it's very I wouldn't say horror, but definitely strange. All right. Anything else we have over to talk about the hunt event for, or are we going to start moving to the AI deck? No, no, except I wouldn't mind just quickly recapping those rules. So if you're going to go hunt to Phoenix, 
make sure everybody who goes in has at least the number of uh, XP tokens as the level of the Phoenix you're hunting. Bring along one piece of gear that you don't mind being unmade, preferably a weapon. Um, but, you know, armor's okay if, if that's what you're, uh, all you've got that's available. Um, and uh, what else was it? There's one more thing. The strength? Yes, that's it. Yes, make sure that you've got some strength bonuses. Unless you really want to roll more random hunt events, say if you're hunting, I don't know, the portcullis, um, then you might want to choose to not be able to pass that roll. But anyway, uh, as I said, it's a good, good hunt deck. Excellent design. All right. So All right. Yep, let's go and move on to the AI cards now. All right, so first I'm going to just go over the uh, the basic action card and talk about the level 1 Phoenix, and then we'll talk about the level 2 and 3 afterwards. So the basic uh, basic action, he does closest threat in range. The target gains an age token, which we'll talk about those in a second. He uh, does a move and attack, 2 speed, 2 plus accuracy, 2 damage. Uh, and then the thing he does right after this is Razor Winds, uh, which is Survivor's in the blast zone, suffer knockback seven, bash and bleed one. And the bash zone is every single space in front of the monster. Yeah, um, this is a. Uh, I, what I like about this basic action is the sheer number of flow steps you have in it. You got a lot of options to do things. I mean, the very most obvious one is you dash between the moving attack and the razor wind, so you don't get pushed really far back and bled. And I'm sure. Just about everyone who's fought the Phoenix at one point or another has experienced that situation where the Phoenix is just pushing somebody out of the fight constantly. Yeah, so let's look at the level 1 Phoenix. Um, it has a movement of 8, a toughness of 10, uh, 8 basics, 3 advance, and 1 legendary card. Um, and his instinct is disdain, which is place the Phoenix in the center of the... At the center of the Nightmare Tree, it emits a hissing moan. All non-death survivors suffer brain damage equal to the monster's level, perform Spiral Age, and the Phoenix turn. Yeah, so um, it's worth us talking about the traits, and then we'll go back and talk a bit about Disdain, because Disdain is closely linked to one of the traits. Um, the first one we have is Zeal, which is part of making the Phoenix feel like a boss-type monster, because at the end of each monster turn, it performs a basic action. So even a level 1 Phoenix is going to draw a card and do whatever's on there, and then do a basic action. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to act twice in a turn, basically. Um, Materialize gives the, uh, the Phoenix basically goes off the board, and then is placed adjacent to its target, and um, it's placed so it can land on as many other survivors as possible, so it can collide with them. Uh, the sort of suggestion here is that the Phoenix, uh, well, I'd, I'd imagine the Phoenix disappears from um, time and reappears in a different spot or pauses time when it attacks. Because um, it's kind of, it's not really like it, la well, but it might land on them actually. It's hard. To, I'm not sure. What do you think? Looking at the picture now. It almost seems like he's jumping down on top of them, but with the flavor of materialize, I, I kind of agree with that, where it's the Phoenix is disappearing from the current space timeline and then uh kind of reappearing back onto it to attack the person specifically as well as sit on top of as many survivors as possible he does like sitting on survivors um then we have the two other traits that are quite closely linked which is spiral age and spiral age when that occurs it removes all age tokens and you gain four hunt XP for each token that's removed. And if you gain more hunt XP than available hunt XP boxes, you cease to exist. So this gives you the next rule of fighting the Phoenix, which is don't take anyone who's got too much in the way of uh, hunt XP because they can quite easily disappear. 
Um, and the linked trait to that is the dreaded dreaded decade, which uh, is where you accumulate your age tokens. Uh, so this is a survivor status rather than a trait for the Phoenix. But it does have the ability you can activate it. And as long as you roll on a D10 equal to or less than your insanity, you get to remove all the age tokens. But if you mess that up, you're going to suffer spiral age. So, you know, you uh, you do need to, um, you know, roll well. And sometimes you have to be lucky. So you want someone of high insanity to go after the Phoenix pretty much. So Absolutely. You, that's a good roll. Yeah, yeah. Um, that ties into a bit with the gear, which we'll look at later, but it, it's the Phoenix gear has a lot to do with being insane. So that's kind of another sub-theme to the Phoenix is being insane is a good thing, um, which it often is. But yeah, if, if you don't have a lot of insanity and you can't deal with Dreaded Decade, you need to try and stop the monster disdaining as much as possible. Um, so you, you need to provide it with targets constantly and hope that it doesn't do this too much. Um, or you could just be ageless, in which case you don't care. All the tokens. Yes, and we'll uh, we'll talk all about ageless survivors and their role with hunting the phoenix and uh, the lovely things you can do um, a bit later on. But yeah, uh, the, the Devil One Phoenix has already has four traits that you know, well, three traits in the survivor state it hands out, and it's quite a it's quite an interesting character just from this alone. Um, yeah, so unless there's anything else you guys want to say, should we take a look at the basic actions? I say we go ahead and move on to that. All right, so the first card we're going to look at is uh, Peck. There's two of these in the deck. It's a uh, pick target, last threat to wound in range. Uh, they get an age token, and then he's going to do a move and attack, two speed, two, two plus accuracy, two damage. Uh, before damage, though, he destroys armor at the hit location to zero before applying damage. Uh, yeah. Um, it's worth noting this last threat to wound in range thing is something that the phoenix does a reasonable amount on its attacks when it does pick targets and that's kind of part of the character of the phoenix um and we say its personality comes across it's kind of the phoenix is this great big huge arrogant thing uh, disdain sort of projects that across as well very nicely um but, you know, these tiny little insects that are attacking it it sort of gets angry and attacks back at them mechanically this does mean it's a little bit harder to control the phoenix because it's more likely to go after your damage dealers so you need if you're going to tank you need to be care pay careful attention to your order you send in your damage dealers first and then have your tank go last and actually deal damage and then probably surge the block so it's nice to think about this and this is a different way of attacking compared to some of the other monsters um, apart from that, I mean, you know, losing all armor at a location before applying damage is is really quite scary. So shields and dodges are very essential. Yeah, shields, dodge, all the evasion, make sure that doesn't happen. Very interesting that you bring up the Phoenix kind of being this uh, arrogant character. The way I kind of took it with the last threat to wound is that it almost had a short-term memory thing going on there where he would just, you know, whatever was the last one to bother him is the one he's most interested in uh, pecking back at or attacking back at, essentially. But I could definitely see the uh, the links to it being an arrogance thing as well. Yeah, I, um, I'm very much of the opinion, based on the cards and the style of them, that the Phoenix is... I, I, I subscribe to the idea that if a phoenix dies, it will rewind back on its timeline. Um, 
so then you're dealing with a creature that's never died and so it's incredibly arrogant it's incredibly powerful and it just it, it, it does i think it has like there's a point where yeah board is one of the other ai cards we're going to look at and then we've got like top of the food chain and things like that and disdain itself and yeah i i'm of the opinion that there is uh that this, the phoenixes are very sentient and very aware of how strong they are um and uh and they don't really think very much about um, the survivors uh, i'm not sure they have a, sh- uh, a low short term memory but perhaps all that time hopping around as adult all right next up i'm going to group these three cards the same because they're the exact same thing they just target slightly differently it's the left wing strike the right wing strike and the instant wing strike um, they're all last threat to wounded range. They gain an age token. It's move and attack, two, two speed, two accuracy, two plus damage. But then he does razor wing, and depending on the card, he either does to the left, to the right, or in front of him. So this is a definitely an interesting mechanic that they put in just to you know uh, have repeat cards that aren't repeat cards. That you know adds a little bit of different flavor to how the monster is going to be performing his actions each time around. Yeah, yeah. I um I like this and I like uh this is one of those cards which I think is good when you're playing AI manipulation because there's a bit of you you roll high to see what the Phoenix is going to do and then you can think about where you're going to position to deal with uh with these cuz uh if you get caught by one of these off guard it could be a lot of a, a huge problem with the wrong target attacking all of a sudden you everybody could be getting hit with razor wind. And as you said before, it's got that flow space in there as well, so you can use that opportunity to dash out of the way or surge to put up a shield if necessary, something to that effect. Yeah, Phoenix rule number five, don't fight it without dash and surge. All right, next up is the Pulsate Cannon. This is going to do a blast zone. Pustule. Pustule. Sorry, I pronounced that wrong. And uh, he's going to hit everything to the left and to the right of him, it looks like, for... Yeah, and one other extra spot, your favorite in his, one. In his butt. Yeah. Uh, each person gets an age token. It looks like he doesn't hit all the way to the left and right. He hits, I don't know how many spaces that is, because there's no arrows pointing Eight. for it. Eight spaces. Um, you get an age token, and then every target in the blast zone gets an attack of five speed, four plus accuracy, one damage, and before damage, reduce armor points to all hit locations by two. Yep, so once again, this is a kind of attack you want to da- dash. Uh, but luckily, it's quite inaccurate. So the other option is, if you've got very high evasion, you could sit there and hope uh, that it doesn't roll the nines or tens it needs to hit. Considering it's five speed, I think normally you're going to be dashing to avoid this. Yeah, it's particularly nasty just because of the fact that you know you have an opportunity, as you said before, for almost all, if not almost all, of your survivors to be targeted by this. And then five speed is really nasty, especially when you're reducing armor points to not just one but all hit locations by two but also as i say you kind of you've got to have somebody in here to start this off otherwise it's going to disdain which uh, can be quite problematic and annoying depending on your positions on the board and your status with uh, age tokens so yeah definitely looks like you want a dodgy tank in there to avoid his postural cannons i think just having someone who can dash is normally good enough but later on, yeah, if you're running ragged on your survival. All right, so his last real attack card of his uh, basics is the Wing Punch, Random Survivor. Uh, target gets an age token, target is doomed, materialize, and attacks the target. It's a 1 speed, 2 plus accuracy, 4 damage. After damage, you suffer knockback 7 and bash. Yeah, I love the image of this one because if you look at the Phoenix model and you look at those wings, you can actually see, because the sculptor's done a phenomenal job, um, 
and you can see that the the phoenix wings actually have a huge hand up near the top section um so i love the idea of basically the phoenix curling up its five fingers or four fingers and a thumb and literally just socking a survivor with the wing which is what i actually think is happening here um but this is the kind of attack that's very hard, easy to deal with um it's basically you just need a shield and you're fine yeah, Doom Doom does a pain on it, but the fact that it's only a one speed attack, it's kind of meh. So it's definitely something that's definitely manageable. It's interesting it has so many flow steps because and it's it always has these flow steps around the age tokens, um, which gives you a chance to do do things and deal with tokens or get rid of them like but uh you can't dash to get away from this one because it's just going to materialize next to you so all you can do is dash to try and stop the Phoenix landing on too many of your fellow survivors. All right, let's get into the Intimidate card to the basics. So, Pitying pitying Sigh? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Pitying Sigh. And this is another part of why I think the Phoenix sort of really is quite an arrogant character because, I mean, the very name of this is... Uh, and, and it's... It was down here, the... Um, well, I may as well read the card. I'll take the, the hit this time. So it picks a target, which is all survivors in field of view. Uh, if there happens there's no survivors in field of view, it will do disdain. Uh, it does the same, give everyone an age token, uh, and then it intimidates everyone. Um, but if you're insane, you laugh in the face of the monster's ignorant condescension, um, and you can spend three survival to gain a courage, which Phoenix is one of those few places you can get a little bit of courage from. Um, there's no way to get lots of courage in the game the way you can with understanding if phoenix does provide a source otherwise if you're not insane you suffer two brain damage and you're knocked down so yeah as i said this is uh well it's an intimidate so there's no dodginess um but it's not too bad uh i certainly would le- let this kick off quite a lot during a fight against the phoenix uh given the choice if i was pruning the ai deck this is one of the cards i'd leave in because it does have a, an upside um and yeah again i like the character on it but you guys yeah, I do like it. Uh, other point is there are two of these in the deck, not just one. Oh yeah, so uh, I guess if you were, um, if if you all your party was insane, which uh, shame on you for taking an entirely insane party out. But you know sometimes these things happen. Uh, you could prune the deck down to the point where the phoenix sits around sighing in a pitying fashion at you and fawning about a bit while you gain lots, spend survival to gain courage until. You've got you spent enough survival, and then it's time to finish the phoenix off. Yeah, it's a very amusing uh, thought there. You know, kind of thinking about how that would actually play out. So you just a bunch of crazy people fighting the phoenix, and the phoenix is just uh, at them in an infinite loop. You're all a bunch of idiots, and they're all just busy laughing at it. Yeah. All right. So the next intimidate uh, card is pick target last threat to wound in range. Uh, it's ancient stare, by the way. Um, target gains one age token. Materialize and intimidate target. Roll 1d10 on a result of a 2 plus perform spiral age. Target suffers 1 brain damage per martial level and is knocked down. Yep, so this one's very sort of dependent on uh, on the situation of the particular survivor that it's targeted. Um, it could be an absolute nightmare if you have a lot of um, age tokens, or it basically could be between 1 and 3 brain damage. Um, it's kind of interesting that the three intimidate cards we've looked at so far here are relatively soft as far as it goes i mean the phoenix doesn't particularly deal a lot of brain damage overall compared to some of the other monsters um again i I feel like this is a a relatively low threat card depending on the situation it can be very scary 
if you do have hunters with a moderate to high amount of hunt XP. Um, how about you, Matt? Yeah, definitely. It doesn't seem like it's too much of a problem as long as you're managing your age tokens and you didn't bring a bunch of uh, almost retirees on the fight with you. Uh, otherwise, again, this is one where you might find it beneficial if you want to age up some of your party a little bit. Uh, it's not a huge deal. Damn it, he was one hunt away from retirement, and now he doesn't exist anymore. Who? Exactly. All right, so let's go into the uh, three mood cards, basic mood cards that we have. Uh, let's first one we're going to go into is Haze. Lanterns, lantern lights trail in the darkness. Everything slows and thoughts are cleared. Each age choking gained while the following effects while Haze is in play. Blech, I can't speak today. Minus one movement, minus one speed. Uh, movement from dash and activations from surge are not affected by Haze. Yeah, so uh, interesting one. Um, like, again, as I've said before, I'm a huge advocate of taking the Whisker Harp out, um, especially because this more or less forces you to start spiral aging away your tokens uh, to try and deal with them. Otherwise, you could get quite badly bogged down. The loss of speed isn't too much of an issue overall, um, because one speed is fine. You can manage that, but being down to one movement could be horrific. So uh, it's um, it's definitely an interesting one. Have, has this has this cropped up when you guys have been fighting it? I don't think so. I don't think we've ever had Haze pop up over and fight in the Phoenix. No, I don't remember ever having to deal with this card. Um, it is worth noting, though, that it's, again, not as horrible as it could be just because it opens up the possibility for you to still dash and surge unaffected by that. But if you don't have dash and or surge, you're more screwed but i definitely agree with you fen there that i wouldn't mind losing the speed at all just because you have to cap a minimum of one uh but the minus movement if you know you're getting knocked back seven from the uh, razor wind and such it's going to be almost impossible to fight the phoenix if those start stacking up yeah yeah this is another one as well i think that provides a very nice image um of phoenix's character in this case it's sort of uh a, a nice like you know, haze, everything's slowing down. It's a great piece of imagery, very evocative. And, and I have noticed when I've fought the Phoenix with my my friends who play a bit less, they they're enamoured with the Phoenix because of just how characterful things like this are. All right. So next to the next, uh, onward to the next card. I can't speak or read today. Um, chatter. When chatter comes into play, draw an AI card. Survivor that spends uh, activation in the noise radius, which is every space adjacent to him or around him. Suffer two brain damage and double their age tokens. Uh, once per turn, a survivor in the noise radius may attempt to comprehend the noise in their head. Roll one d10. If the result is equal to or less than their understanding, they gain a plus two insanity. Otherwise, they are knocked down. So, um, well, first of all, when we start talking about something a bit later on, um, specifically one of the legendary cards, remember this when I start talking about chatter. Okay, remember this card. Um, this one, again, could be really bad, could be really good. Um, you notice, again, it gives insanity out. So this is kind of this whole um, Phoenix kind of thing of insanity is good. I, and it promotes insanity in characters. Uh, you can avoid this one quite easily with spears and bows, which isn't too bad um, at all. And uh, it's it's a softer mood compared to many of them in the game. It's worse. Um Plus, I mean, you know, more character. I like to think that this uh, this represents the um, phoenix making chicken noises. 
very amusing to think of this gigantic monster on the board that's manipulating space and time that's just kind of clucking at you like a chicken. Uh, but going back to what you said, yeah, this is easily dealt with with anything with reach or range on it. But I was just thinking of the possibility of chatter stacking up with haze and doubling the age tokens with the haze token effect going on. Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, the last basic mood card is board. While board's in play, the Phoenix gains minus two toughness tokens. And then instead of drawing an AI card on its next turn, it's going to do Spiral Cyclone. Um, which is uh, survivors in the eye of the storm, which is the middle spot in every single side of him, gains plus one insanity and plus one survival. All other survivors suffered damage equal to the monster's level, knockback seven, and bash. Uh, once that's completed, you discard board and disdain. Yeah, it's this kind of a pretty straightforward, really. Yeah, it's kind of a pleasant mood card to have in play, actually. The only thing really bad is the disdain if you have a lot of age tokens out on the board. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't have too much to say about this one. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's is—it's got a nice bit of character to it again. And like I said, I think this fuels into my theory that the Phoenix is very arrogant and doesn't take the survivors seriously at all. But yeah, it's uh, its okay. Again, I wouldn't mind having this one still in the AI deck. Uh, I like the fact that there's counterplay for it and positioning matters. All right, so let's go to the advanced cards. I'm going to start off the first mood since we're talking about moods already. And there's only one mood in the advanced cards, which is the... Ranched Melon Stench. Um, when this comes into play, the... I'm going to pronounce this word wrong. Pulses? Pul- Pultus? Yeah. Pustules. Pustules on the Phoenix's maje- majestic body suddenly con- ugh, contrast. All survivors gain an age... Contract. Sorry, I can't read. Um, That's okay. <laughs> all survivors gain one age token. Uh, when Rancid Melon Stench is in play, the Phoenix gains plus one speed token. If there are no age tokens in play, discard. Uh, the mood. Yeah, this one's um can be kind of really a bad one. I mean, basically plus one speed token. And depending on what you're trying to do with the Phoenix, you may not be able to get rid of the age to, uh, the, yeah, the age tokens at all. So uh, it, it's a nasty one. It's one that I would try and Phoenix uh, Phoenix I'd try and whisker harp off the board. That's because the Phoenix has got whiskers. That's why I said that. Um, it's it's kind of very straightforward. Otherwise, though, um, despite having so many different uh icons on it and everything but uh it's uh it's just basically plus one speed to the phoenix most of the time with some controller yeah for having a lot of text it really just boils down to plus one speed until there's no more age tokens indeed and uh it's got some good flavor again melon flavor this time apparently yep and so let's go to some of the attack cards uh next one up is gorge and feast survivor with the least age tokens they gain age token, materialize and attack the target. Two speed, two plus accuracy, two damage. Before damage, destroy armor to zero at that hit location before applying damage. And then uh, the last bit on this is the second mouth begins the feast. If damage was dealt and target is adjacent to the monster, target suffers the disembowel severe injury. So this is a particularly nasty one. Again, we're looking at the Phoenix reducing armor to a hit location before applying damage, which is a pain in the ass. Uh, as you know, very scary circumstance because you could be going in with a nicely heavily armored uh, survivor, and that kind of means jack when something like this comes up. And uh, disemboweled is never fun as well. This was our introduction to the Phoenix. The first time we fought it, um, 
crit well sorry our first introduction to the phoenix was the story event where it um turns up the phoenix feather and that killed chris's survivor when we were playing uh so chris had a bit of a thing about us going after the phoenix he convinced us to hunt it and the very first thing it did was it gouge and feasted him and disemboweled him um he's kind of got a, a torch to bear for the phoenix ever since so this was quite a uh a hello from it as for what it's like well um it's relatively straightforward. It's very similar to the basic attacks, except it's got this um, disembowel instead of the uh, razor wind effect. Razor wing. Wind? Yeah, wind. Razor wind. Um, again, shields. Shields and dodges is what you need to, to be able to handle this, because the Phoenix destroying armor before it starts applying damage could easily result in you know two severe injuries being landed on you, one being disemboweled. Um, and it is, impression. it is important to note here that there is a flow in between when it actually is attacking and when it applies the disemboweling. So you could yeah. use that opportunity to dash out of the way to make sure you don't get your stomach ripped open by its second mouth. Considering what disembowel does to you, reducing you down to one movement, you probably should if you can. All right, and then he has one more basic, well, not basic, uh, one more attack card with his advanced cards, um, which is the difference between us. Survivor with the least age token. So both his advanced cards target the survivor with the least age tokens. Uh, he materializes adjacent to the target. Target gains one age token. Target cannot block. Attack the target. It's a two speed, two plus accuracy. Ten damage. And before damage, headhunter. Attack always hits the head location. Suffer. Target suffers minus two to severe injury rolls. All I yeah, can really this, say to that is, ouch. Yeah, this one's a, an absolute beauty of a, a card. Again, the difference between us, see this, the Phoenix's arrogance coming uh, coming to the front here. Um, but yeah, I, I find it very interesting that this is one of the few cards that stops blocking. It doesn't doom, um, so you can dodge, but it, it does. It stops blocking, and it has what... Um, I mean, let's face it, short of you having 12 armor on the head... Um, or managing to avoid both hits, this is a 60% chance of decapitation. And this isn't included, I know we're going to head of yourself, but if you're fighting a level 2 or a level 3 Phoenix, the top of the food chain, which adds minus 3 to all severe injury rolls, so you're pretty much dead on anything but a 9 or 10? Yeah, what a beast. No, I think it's a 10 plus, because it would be minus 5 it's to your roll, and it's a 4, it's typically a 4 or under you die. Yeah, so one or two causes your head to explode, and a three or four decapitates you. So yes, if you've got minus five, then a nine would still kill you short of something like Unbreakable or um, Dried Acanthus. Yeah. Now we're going to get into his interesting cards. I like how that doesn't quantify as one of his interesting cards. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, exactly. Well, these these are, like, they're not intimidates and are not attacks. They're just kind of things that happen. So the first one we're going to go into is Ripple. The steady pulse of their lantern stunningly stop. Uh, perform spiral age all survivors suffer brain damage equal to the monster's level so it's just another way to perform spiral age yeah this one could be bad could be um absolutely nothing whatsoever it depends on the situation of the party you're hunting with um it does uh it's just a little nice bit of time manipulation that the phoenix likes to do and um i like the word just as an aside all right next up is unspoken the phoenix unspeaks a name the survivor with the most age tokens suffers unspeak uh, on speak, you roll d d10 and subtract the survivor's current age tokens from the result. If the result is equal to or greater than their understanding, they suffer the lost name. Otherwise, nothing happens. Lost name, gain plus two understanding, erase the survivor's name, remove all age tokens, 
and lose all survival until they are renamed at the settlement. They cannot gain survival if a survivor is given the same name. They cease to exist. Uh, there's a, a um, an interesting little implication from this. Um, that last sentence, if a survivor is given the same name, they cease to exist. That's not just a survivor who's had the name unspoken. That's any survivor. So, you know, if your survivor's called Rupert and he gets unspoken, if you call any survivor in the settlement Rupert, they're gone. I've never noticed that before. Yeah. Yeah, I've never noticed that either. That adds a very interesting thing going on there. <laughs> it it yeah, becomes yeah. a cursed name. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an interesting one. I think I'd go as far as to rule it. If anyone goes, well, I'm going to be Rupert 2, I'd be like, well, yeah, tough luck, Rupert 2. You're gone. And so is Rupert the Third and Rupert Jr. But yeah, it's... um. This one again, it's it's not an absolute disaster. It's it's kind of can be beneficial in many ways. Um, the unable to gain survival is a fringe case where it sort of shuts down rawhide and a few other items that give survival. But um, again, this is soft compared to a lot of what the phoenix can do. And as I said it's sort of this. It's the same thing as with the hunt event, where I said you seem to have either something really bad happens or something great happens, and you've got a lot of this going on with the Phoenix's deck as well. It's very swingy. All right, next one is a uh, excrete. I knew this one would be yep. next. The Phoenix defecates on the survivors unfortunate enough to be in his blind spot. Each survivor rolls a d10 in the blind spot. Uh, one, they either dodge or they suffer a severe head injury. Uh, two through eight. Uh, they get covered in poop and su- suffer one brain damage per monster level and gain plus one survival and the Muculus drop-ins, Phoenix resource. Uh, 9 through 10 is a rare goo, gain the rainbow drop-ins, Phoenix resource. Yep, so this one, as bizarre as it is, you've got a little flow step there. It's time for everybody to dash into the blind spot or as many people as possible because this is resource gathering time. It's great to pull as many of these drop-ins cards out of the deck as possible and the worst that happens is you have to spend a survival to dodge you know it's another really beneficial card as much as i'd never thought in my life i'd be saying getting excreted on by a giant time checking is beneficial again kind of funny to think about how that would go in the middle of an actual battle there you're all fighting this giant time phoenix and you're like oh my god he's about to poop everyone let's run to the butt well you know um Phoenix dropping seems to be a very valuable commodity in the world of Kingdom Death. So yeah, another beneficial card, another great one. I think you could prune the Phoenix down to be highly beneficial for a group if you wanted to. I mean, you know, admittedly there's a finite limit to how many droppings you're going to pull out of the Phoenix's resource deck, but uh, you know, <laughs> you could end it with a Phoenix doing nothing but pityingly sighing, unmaking names, and pooping. He's just <laughs> he's just going to have like explosive diarrhea, and just he just continues to poop. But uh, this, statistically speaking, it's actually, yeah, again, like you were saying, very beneficial. It's a, you know, nine out of ten chance of getting something good happening to you, which is quite odd for the Kingdom Death universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do have to take some brain damage when you get pooped on, but uh, you get survival as well, so it's not bad. All right, and the last advanced card, which you all know I waited for last, was the uh, Anatorium card. This is a uh, roll d10. And a result of a 6-plus, a random survivor in the blind spot is pulled in. So it's the pu- tune of, uh, uh, of um, Metallica. <laughs> so pulled in. Uh, remove the survivor from the showdown board. Spend all their age tokens on the table. If they survive, place the survivor adjacent to the monster at the start of the next monster's turn. Uh, 
If they spent zero to one age tokens, they get plus one understanding. Two age tokens, insight, and that ignores the lifetime roll. Uh, three, they gained maximum hunt XP. Uh, four, they are the uh, they return to the settlement. Uh, five, they're dead and a baby reappears. So I would guess there that they are essentially aged backwards into infant status. And then a six plus, you never existed. You are dead. Archive your gear and resources. So that's particularly nasty. The archiving all of your gear on the character. Yeah, yeah. This is the um, the risk. This is the card you look to remove when you're doing certain things with the phoenix that I've been hinting at. Um, it's a, a very interesting card. Um, and you know, maybe a reason you don't want to be in the blind spot as opposed to times when you do. Um, so it's not too bad. This card does nothing if you're not in the blind spot. And I do think until you know if the Phoenix is going to be performing the anal torium, um, you should avoid the blind spot as much as possible. So a little bit of an anecdote here. Uh, one of the earlier times we were playing the Phoenix, uh, Josh and myself, he's reading the AI card as it comes up because he's the monster controller. And he says that it's doing the anal torium. And I'm like, Josh, that that's not right. Let me see the card so I can read it. And uh, I grab the card from him, and sure enough, it's Anal Torium. And I'm just like, okay, this is Kingdom Death. One of the things I love, the reason why I love this card, it has so much theme with the Phoenix in it. It has the pooping butt, whatever, and then it's also doing all his time manipulation through his butt. He always seems to do his time manipulation through his butt. This conversation got weird fast. Phoenix, what do you expect? It's a weird monster. You haven't got one sat on your desk next to you. I have. I got two. Question, Fen. Which way are they facing? They're they're both facing towards me, but I'm not sure why there are two because I only left one up here, as far as I remember. Well, technically, they're the same one, right? They are transitioning through the timeline. Yeah, but they've uh, they've changed clothes partway through, different colors. All right, we ready to go into the legendary cards? Before we do, I think we should talk about the uh, level two and three phoenixes, and then yes, we shall go on to these lovely legendary cards. All right, so the level two phoenix, um, it gets its toughness bumped up to from ten to twelve, plus one speed, plus one damage, which is pretty normal. Um, he has ten basics, six AIs, and one legendary, so he has an additional five more cards, um, and he gets top of the food chain, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, level three is uh, still eight movement. 16 toughness, plus 2 speed, plus 3 damage. Um, he has 13 basics, 7 advance, and 2 legendary cards. Um, he also gets a plus 1 evasion token and a plus 1 luck token. Um, but they also both get a new trait, which is top of the food chain. Yeah, and we'll uh, go into the legendary cards right now. But before we do, do you remember, Matt, how you said the Phoenix doesn't really seem to manipulate its own timeline? Well, it's time to look at legendary cards, and you can decide if it does manipulate its own timeline or not after these. Let's have top of the food chain. So top of the food chain, the monster suddenly seems older. Minus three to severe injury rolls resulting from monster attacks. And a rather natty little picture with the phoenix sort of staring up at the at the um, the word at the top. He really has a wonderful mustache. It's a glorious Fu Manchu. But absolutely, Fen, this is uh, showing the phoenix manipulating its own age as it becomes a more seasoned hunter in front of your own eyes. What are you doing there? Bunch of ingrates, get off my tree! Go away! Leave me alone! I'm old! Old but skilled. What's that? <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so, <laughs> Josh, you have fun any... <laughs> of me, I'm going to take your name away from you, boy! <laughs> and, and poop on you. Don't talk about that problem! 
that's what it is. The Phoenix isn't doing it on purpose. He's just incontinent. <laughs> he needs the pens. All right. So next up, we have. Uh, I'm going to go to the duration card. Wait, wait. Bit. Before we do, is this yes. what the Phoenix actually is? Is it a crazy old man who's got incontinence? It's got a huge old man mustache, an old man face, wizened old man fingers, all those problems with time and aging. Is it? Is it just an angry old and man sighing at you and stating the difference between us and stuff like that? It actually does seem like a, cr- a grumpy old man. Was this inspired by Poots's granddad? I think I'm going to play with the Phoenix with the internal monologue of like Clint Eastwood going on the get off my lawn. Get off my lawn, <laughs> young punks. Uh, all right. <laughs> Next up, we have a uh, life pattern. The only duration card he has. Uh, when life pattern is in play, the monster gains plus four toughness tokens. Uh, when it's drawn face up, the Phoenix heals all wounds, remove all negative attribute tokens, return any persistent injuries to the hit location deck, and shuffle. Survivors with age tokens are mysteriously affected. They gain plus two survival and plus two insanity, restore all armor points, heal all injury levels, and remove all permanent injuries, disorders, and tokens, including age tokens, then disdain and archive life pattern. So it's the hard reset from the Phoenix. Yep, yes it is. It's time for a do-over. But that's only if you have age tokens on you. Yeah, well, the Phoenix gets his do-over regardless. Also, with this on top of the deck, you don't want to attack it, because ideally you don't want this to go into the discard pile. Yeah, this is this could be a little nasty, especially late fight. Yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a doozy of a card. It comes. This is the closest we get to the Phoenix rebirthing itself here. Yeah, all I can think about is that I absolutely want this card gone out of the deck. And if it, it does get drawn and resolved, then I'm going to be a bit upset, <laughs> which I was when it happened a couple of times. Um, and uh, it's yeah, this is a cracking little card, though. Uh, Would this least... be an interesting mechanic if you took out an all-gimp team that's had just a bunch of freaking injuries and disorders and stuff, permanent injuries, and just be like, all right, here, just trigger life pattern while you have things and get healed up and then beat the shit out of them. Um, yeah, it would be interesting to have a bunch of gimp disabled survivors attacking an old man bird, sure. It just sounds like the brawl in a nursing home now. <laughs> the entire thing is. <laughs> where, where, where's your legs, boy? Who took my applesauce? Where are we again? What's, what's my name? Oh, dear. Oh, uh... Uh, you know what? I was coming into this a bit like a bit down on the Phoenix because the Phoenix isn't my favorite monster. But I think, you know, I've come to gain a new appreciation for it. Yeah, I, I feel really I, I must apologize. I'm going to apologize to this Phoenix right here now. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Phoenix. I'm going to finish painting you. I promise. That's Soon. right. You, you have to show your elders respect. Yeah, that's right. In my day, I was fully painted. Now I'm all white and gray. As you were saying before, the the flavor of the Phoenix really is fantastic. It lends a lot to the enjoyability of it. Uh. That's right. Show me some respect or I'm going to take your name away and then poop on your face. I'm sorry. I'll stop. (laughs) I just I I can't. I'm just sitting here laughing hysterically right now. I'll send you back. I, I can't do the old man voice, but just imagine him sending you back to your settlement as a baby again. Just be like, no, get out of here. Uh, yes. Uh, Predator Yeah, that's next. So, uh, this is the legendary, uh, mood card. Matt, are you okay? Are you okay now, Matt? I'm, I'm alive. I'll manage. Yeah, yeah okay. Okay. Predator Um, a survivor that ends their act in the zone of death, which is within four spaces of them, must roll d d10. If the result is higher than their courage, they are knocked down. Um, survivors with six plus understand it ignore Predator's aura. 
Uh, this is another. This one's really soft, considering it's um, a legendary. To be honest, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, you find you could be like, oh dear, well, I need some um, good courage to withstand this. But you've got the out of having high understanding as well. Um, so under certain circumstances, this is a very welcome card to see. Uh, it's and also again, bows fairly effective against it. Um, and you know, if you are don't have any bows, then maybe you might want a musical instrument, perhaps. Play some music, soothe him. You know, he's old. He's not deaf, though. Mostly deaf. Uh, no, but even still, it's not really that terrible of a, a card if you are affected by it. So, because it's at the end of your act, you're knocked down. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, we are saying that these cards are kind of soft, but you have to remember that in addition to all of this, the Phoenix is basic action in just about every single time. Yeah, <laughs> Josh's old man is a little girl. <laughs> So true. Yeah, my, my my voices are horrible. It's the fact that I'm you sorry, try to make it for a little bit. So what is next up, Josh? There's one card left. Ben, you want to go over the last card? I know it's one of your favorites. Okay, so uh, it, we're going to segue later on after we finish talking about the Phoenix and come back to this card. But this is Deja Vu. So the first thing the Deja Vu does, if uh, the survivors have fewer than 25 age tokens between them, each survivor with no age tokens whatsoever, has to roll a d10. On a 7+, they cease to exist. 40% chance. So have some age tokens. Deja vu, kind of scary. But if you have 25 or more age tokens between all the survivors, which is a lot, it is a lot, then uh, you get to get a new settlement record sheet and start a new campaign from the first story. Get right in there and fight that um, prologue white line. With the current survivors, any gear and resources they currently have with them. This is what we call triggering the new game plus, and it's currently one of only two ways you can get it. The other is via the Clinging Mists settlement event card, uh, if you don't have a guidepost. So uh, this card, this is what I primarily fight the Phoenix for. Um, and as I said, I'm going to come back to this in a bit of detail, but I would prefer to go through the hit location deck and the resource deck first, and then I'll come back and discuss deja vu tactics, because you can save campaigns, especially people of the stars, where you are gated away from getting to the victory unless you achieve certain conditions. You can't. It's not like people of the lantern where you just need to survive and beat the watcher. No, you have to do certain stuff. Um, deja vu can save the day. Um, also, if you're making green armor or you're doing really, really crazy stuff, Deja Vu is your gateway towards it. Um, my longest running campaign, which I sacrificed, uh, well, about it was last month because I'd had enough of it. I used Deja Vu to go into the fifth timeline. Um, so uh, it's it's a phenomenal card, and I will discuss the strategy for dealing with it shortly. But beforehand, let's... Uh, Let's sort of recap a little bit on what Phoenix is like to fight as a whole. So general kind of strategy ideas, and then we're going into the hit location decks. So first of all, you guys have had a fair bit of experience on stream. So what in general terms has worked for you, Josh? For us, um, I like to sit in its four side spots around him. Um, only I just noticed it's only that one mood card that actually triggers that um, spiral. What is it called? Uh, spiral, spiral Cyclone. Of cyclone. Yeah, but I like I like that position for the Phoenix because with everyone on one side, his basic attack, um, his razor wing, um, doesn't hit everyone. It it will only target one person, um, and it keeps everyone kind of in their own little area to be free to do what they need to do. And then 
dash out of the way and not affect anyone else near them, uh, especially if it materializes or anything so else. There, everyone's in a safe spot. So just to visualize that, that's one in each of the cardinal positions, then. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's my go-to um, placement on the board. Um, we haven't fought the Phoenix too much. We've done it a bit. Um, we got owned by it by level three for for Poots and everyone to watch. That was great. We only did that like three times um, and died horribly each time. <laughs> but uh, his his basic attack action is I, what I find one of the hardest things about him is because you just need to dodge every single round with a survivor. And you can start losing some survival as that happens. Yes. Yeah. Matt, what are your thoughts? I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. It seems that we have that mood card as a board come into play more often than not, because uh, I distinctly remember us having to deal with that spiral cyclone quite a bit whenever we fought the Phoenix. Um, but yeah, it's just about the fact that the more survival you have when you fight them, the better. And again, that's been echoed many times. Don't take young ones. Don't take old ones. Just go for the just right survivors. So, so the Phoenix is a picky old man who likes, you know, middle-aged survivors. Exactly. Yeah. So do you want to get into the hit location cards now? Yes, yeah, so we shall. And um, I'll take the lead on this. Um, if you just give me one moment, I'm going to grab my hit location. All right. So, Josh... Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of our past experiences with the Phoenix while Fen is prepping for this? Uh, our biggest experience was that stream that we died a lot, and then you left, and then we had Zenith and Zach come on, and we died again, and then again. Yeah, Actually, no, no, we, we ceased to exist. Well, you got unmade one time, right? Yeah, we, we ceased to exist, and then we died. But uh, as Fen was saying with the uh, the deja vu gaming to get the settlement reset we've actually never experienced that we've had our settlement reset several times based off of the clinging mist with the lack of guidepost but this seems like a much more not surefire but you know more controllable way to have that occur so i'm looking forward to possibly trying that in the future high risk high reward okay well i'm I'm ready i'm good to go so uh we off yeah let's go go so i figure we'll start with the feathered buttock does that sound acceptable? Sounds perfectly appropriate. I figured you'd like a bit of old man bird butt. Uh, right, so the feather buttocks is a wound location and a lot, a wound reaction location. A lot of the phoenix's reactions are based on wounds. Um, there are relatively few which are reflex or failure. Uh, and this is a, a mechanic you're going to see quite a bit within the phoenix's hit locations, which is called rewind. So if you have any age tokens when you wound the feathered buttocks, uh, you suffer rewind, which undoes your entire attack, restores all. Uh, all wounds, all persistent injuries that you've caused to the monster, and then you get pushed five spaces away, or basically you get sent back in time five spaces away. Um, additionally, this is one of the crit locations. If you do manage to crit, you get to ignore, rewind, and gain two small feathers. So one of the first things that I tend to find about Fighting Phoenix, given how it reacts when you hit it, it's very nice to... Um, to use slow weapons because there's less of a drawback if you hit these grand weapons in particular are phenomenal because they have that additional crit chance as well so uh yeah it's it's pretty good and it's, i think this is a good card to start with because it does kind of show you a little bit of the effects of the phoenix um the critical location 
apart from just sending a, a really pretty image of the colourful feathers flying everywhere, gives you not one but two small feathers resources, so that's too hide from a crit location. Uh, which is good, because the Phoenix doesn't have that many locations you score resources on crits, but those that you do, you get good stuff. Uh, next of all would be the feathered body. Um, which is plus two toughness to wound this location. Pretty straightforward there. Uh, on the crit location, the terrific attack slams into the Phoenix's massive frame. It hesitates, shocked that a puny human could hard it. You gain one random Phoenix, and uh, one random Phoenix? One random Phoenix resource. I wouldn't want another random Phoenix turn in. Uh, the Phoenix staggers and cancels any reactions till the end of the attack. So this is one of those lovely locations to pull to the top of the deck and try and crit. Again, grand weapons, katars luck things like that fantastic um and it adds a little bit more of the character of the phoenix in that it's sort of shocked that it could be harmed you know that I, I do think this is quite an arrogant or perhaps forgetful creature absolutely his arrogance is definitely shining through with uh cards like this uh we've had the butt so now we've got the feathered breast another rewind location um, so exactly the same. If you wound it will um, with age tokens, it will rewind and undo your attack. Uh, on the critical wound, you cause the monster's heart to skip a beat and it falls in love with you. Oh, you now have a phoenix in the settlement. No, it, it falls over. Um, and that's lovely because a knockdown monster doesn't have any reactions with the exception of the track. So it's time to start beating the heck out of it. And then you so, can have a phoenix back at the settlement, but it's a corpse. Well, so the phoenix does fall for you then. Literally, yes. Uh, right. Uh, then we got the feathered back because, you know, uh, back, baby's got back. Um, this one's slightly different on the wound. Instead of getting a rewind, the phoenix displaces, um, which is uh, you place a phoenix anywhere along the board edge furthest from the attacker. If the attacker has any age tokens, you may attempt to follow the phoenix. If you roll, roll a dice and if your result is equal to or less than your hunt XP, you get to be placed in a free space adjacent to the phoenix. Otherwise, cancel or hits now out of range. Uh, on a critical wound, the phoenix suffers one extra wound and stumbles, moving one space forward. So, again, this is this one I like. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, you get to follow maybe through a ripple in time that the phoenix has created. Um, and the, the stumble sort of, well, you know, that's I think we've established now the phoenix is an old man. So uh, he does, does fall around a fair bit. Um, there, there's something to consider, though, when hitting the phoenix is you may not want to be in the front space. Um, when you're attacking like this, because somebody could get knocked backwards. I really do love the flavor of this card with the displacement uh, reaction. Uh, as it's you were great. saying, it's you get dragged through a, a rip in the in time and get teleported over to another thing. It's very great to imagine that. Uh, it definitely adds a nice amount of interest and flavor to the attack and allows you to visualize it in your head very interestingly. You, uh, if you like this, then you're definitely going to love my favorite monster in the entire game when you finally get to face him. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you know, hints for what's ahead. Um, next, we've got the Feathered Wing. Uh, on a wound, the Phoenix blows everything away. Um, so this is ties into Josh saying he likes to fight in the, uh, the cardinal positions around the Phoenix because uh, on a wound, the Phoenix will blow everything away. If you're in the Eye of the Storm, you get that lovely insanity. Otherwise, you get knockback seven and bashed. Um, I keep meaning to note this. Uh, bash, obviously, leather armor prevents bash, if I remember correctly. Is that right, Josh? Yes, that's correct. 
So leather armor is pretty good against the Phoenix, and you certainly want at least your tank wearing it. But also, rawhide seems pretty good because you're going to be doing a lot of dashing. Um, now on a critical wound in this location, the Phoenix gains a minus one movement token because you've hurt his wings a bit, and he needs to stop and you know check on them and complain about his arthritis. Uh, then the last of the feathered locations, I believe, is the feathered neck. You strike the monster's thick neck. Standard location, nothing special happens in that case. Uh, on a critical wound, you damage its cervical vertebrae, crippling in its defenses. You gain a random phoenix resource, and it gets minus one toughness token, which is, this is very much a classic kind of hit location. You see this in a number of different monsters. Uh, it's a great one to hit, especially early on in the fight. Yeah, the permanent minus one toughness token, you know, status effect on the phoenix really is beneficial, especially early on. And, uh, you know, it's it's terrible to think that the Phoenix has such bad osteoporosis that you could damage his cervical vertebrae like that. He's getting on in the years, you know. Okay, so the next set of locations are all glorious. Uh, first of all, we have the glorious armpit. Um, this is maybe the only failure location in the deck, if I remember correctly. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, so this is the only one which, if you wound and fa fail to wound, sorry, if you hit and fail to wound, uh, he will react by hitting you with a basic action. Um, on a crit, though, you damage his liver, destroying a unique filtration system against the persistent injury of the ruined liver, uh, which replaces the following abilities, turning displacement into the attacker is covered in rainbow goo, and you gain one insanity, and on materialize, the phoenix is knocked down. So what we learn from this card is that not only uh, does the phoenix have its liver near its armpit, but that its liver is closely linked to its time manipulation abilities. Because he's filtering the time? Quite possibly, yeah. You know, he's got a hell of a set of liver spots there. Or right. maybe it's just that uh, the, uh, the phoenix is a heavy drinker, and that's that what it is. Oh, I, that seems a little slanderous. I don't think my phoenix drinks. Not the one I imagine, anyway. He poops rainbows. Next, we have the Glorious Crest. Uh, first of all, if he does get hit with this, he will turn to face you, no matter what. Um, then, on a wound effect, he will do the displacement. Um, and on a critical hit, you gain a random Phoenix resource. So this is that lovely little crest at the top of the Phoenix. So I can only assume if you've wounded that, you've either the Phoenix is bent down a little bit too close while it's squawking at you angry like a dinosaur, or, um, or you've managed to climb up on its back and, and hit it there. But uh, it's a very straightforward location otherwise, apart from the displacement. Um, then we've got the Glorious Eye, which is another rewind location on a wound. Again, this is why I recommend slow weapons against the Phoenix. But I kind of recommend this slow weapons against most monsters. Uh, on a critical wound, though, you burst the monster's eye and uh, with a milky ichor. Any adjacent survivor gains one insanity and one survival. And this is a really nice, unusual thing if you're insane. You can spend three survival to find deep inspiration in the taste and gain a random fighting art, which is, you know, have you ever ever had that happen? Yes, we've had that happen once or twice before, and uh, getting the random fighting art is really nice based off of a critting a hit location. It's just such a, you're not used to seeing that uh, happening, so it's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, there's a few uh, monster locations I know if you hit, you can spend survival to get stuff like the Strange Hand. A lot of them, though... Uh, 
actually the survival costs you pay are quite high so it's nice to have one which is this three survivals i think a reasonable amount to pay for a random fighting art it seems well priced absolutely considering that it could be quite a beneficial fighting art for you yeah, who knows? Uh, next of all, we've got the glorious hands. So these are the big hands, not uh, the. Um, I, I believe they're the ones attached to the wings, to be specific, because uh, it says you strike the monster's powerful digits. I mean, admittedly, there's a lot of hands on this thing. Um, but on a critical wound, you sever a slender phoenix finger and gain one phoenix finger phoenix resource, which when you do look at the card, that very much looks like the. Well,. The fingers from the phoenix, uh, sorry, from the wings, but it could be the ones on the hands. Who knows? Probably is, actually. Um, you can also spend two survival to heroically bellow, and if you do, all non-deaf survivors gain one courage. So this is a small th- sub-theme of the phoenix giving you courage. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, the phoenix finger is a resource we're going to talk about a bit later because it's one of the ones that I uh, like because of the one, it's one of my favorite items. From the phoenix comes from this so uh, this is one of those locations i do want to crit whenever i can but i always want to crit the monster resource locations uh, then we have the glorious handed feet on a reflex the monster glare pierces the survivor's puny mind causing explosions of pain turn to face the attacker and roll 1d10 if the result is higher than the attacker's hunt xp they suffer one brain damage for each age token they have so this this will punish you for accumulating lots of age tokens um, can be quite a scary experience, uh, less so for a settlement who's accepted darkness. On a critical wound, you gain one random phoenix resource, and you get to smash the monster's foot, smash it apart in triumph, and you can spend one survival to howl and encourage all knockdown survivors. Bit of an edge case, but it's an optional thing, so it's not, not too bad. Yeah, nothing particularly phenomenal about the spending one survival to encourage all the knockdown survivors, because... I mean, he does have a lot of bash and other knockdown stuff going on, but I feel like that's kind of a unique circumstance that you would ever have to do that specifically for this card. So it's not a huge deal, but the random resource is very nice. Yeah, Phoenix butt. Um, Then we've got the Glorious Head. Again, this is another rewind location on a wound. Um, On a critical wound... The trauma causes the monster to black out momentarily. The monster gains minus two toughness for the rest of the attack, and you get to cancel all reactions until the end of the attack, which is a very powerful ability. Definitely a place you would like to um, crit if you can manage it, because it will make life a great deal easier if you're rolling with a lot of speed. Uh, some katars, for example, might have a fair amount, fairly high amount of speed, and it's a good way of cancelling rewind. Um, then we have the only first strike location in the deck i think yes the only first strike location which is the glorious primary eyes um the suggestion is that these are the ones that are inside the face or are the ones outside i can't remember the secondary face is the one inside the beak so i believe these are the ones on the outside around around the outside of the beak um you have to uh, hit this location first if you're going to hit but you do get the option to cancel your attack because the uh, reason is is that, the, that unless you crit, the phoenix is going to stare into your future and kill all of your children, every single one of them. No children for you, and you get the destroyed genitals, severe waste injury. To make note, when we fought the phoenix on for the Twitch thing, uh, both times my tank drew and hit this card. Oh dear. 
kind of funny though. So he like kind of what stares at your package and blows up your testicles and then all your kids die. He he gives you the second to consider if you really want to hit him or not though. Because he says you, you can cancel your attack if you want to keep your balls. Do you really want to do that, boy? Or ovaries. Let's not, you know, be gender specific here. That's true. Uh, well, I kind of picture this as sort of like you get, you're about to poke it in in its uh, primary eyes and you get this moment of sort of looking and you, you see this future with all your children being unmade and not one single one of them can uh, ever go on the Phoenix's lawn as a consequence of your actions. So, you know, it's up to you. He's so possessive about his uh, patch of turf that he won't even let your kids exist. But this uh, doesn't affect. Of... Sorry. This doesn't affect your current children, though, right? Uh, well, that I, I don't think so. But if you really wanted to rules as um, rules as written, this card, rather than the intent of it, it's a monster stares into your future and kills all your children. So yes, it. It's suggesting future children, but as it's written, it kind of goes, I look into your future, and any kids you've just had are dead. I've Um, killed your family. All of them, yes. But the crit location on this is very, very nice. Uh, Getting the minus two accuracy on the Phoenix, so this is definitely high risk, high reward. And also, um, this is an interesting one, because it's a persistent injury with no persistent injury effect. So basically, if you do destroy its primary eyes, it loses the ability to stare into your future and get rid of all of your uh, all of your kiddies, all your children. I'm surprised they just didn't put archive this card on the critical. Yeah, that would have been more elegant. But uh, you know, this Kingdom Death has its eccentricities. Now we have the glorious soft belly, which is another rewind location. Um, and on a critical wound, you get to uh, deliver a persistent injury of an open wound. Whenever the monster draws an AI card, roll 1d10 on a result of a 1, it suffers a wound. This is very similar to the things that happens to the um, antelope and the white lion. Uh, 10% chance of injury in it each time it draws an AI card. The phoenix does draw multiple AI cards sometimes, so it does have a chance of taking multiple wounds. It doesn't cancel the card drawn. But it's always nice when the uh, monster kills itself, like we did with the uh, DBK. Yeah, it was cool. Okay, um, then we have the Glorious Wing Claws and the Glorious Wing Sphincter. I mention both these together because they have the same wound effect, which is they will do Eye of the Storm, which again, unless you're standing in the cardinal positions around the Phoenix, uh, then you'll um, get knocked back seven and bash. Um, with the Glorious Wing Claws, if you do crit, it gets a minus one damage token. Very desi- very desirable. And... Um, the Wing Sphincter um, court gives you one insanity when you crit, and if you're insane, the taste is delicious and you gain three survival. Yeah, just to go back there, the first sentence there is the putrid sphincter explodes, so his he has explosive diarrhea and you think it tastes fantastic. It's the um, sphincters on the wings. If you have a look at the model, which I, I don't think you have with you, it's got a number of um, sphincters all over its uh, wings, which is where the melon stench comes from. Ah, so those are the pustules that it's referring to? Yes, I, I, I'm not sure if exactly it's the pustules or not, but yes, I think so. It's, uh, it's certainly not the back sphincter. All the buttholes. Many, many sphincters, yes. All right, uh, now we've got the only impervious location that the uh, Phoenix has, and of course, it's the hard beak. Sorry, super dense. What am I saying? It's got two impervious locations. This is the super dense location. Uh, on a reflex, the monster gets... Sorry, this is a reflex. The monster gets... Right, let's start this one again. I'd like to do a. Got the curse of Josh. 
Could you could you ask the Phoenix to wind back time? Hang on, I'm gonna ask you. Can, can you wind back time, please? No, you fucked up, you stupid idiot. Start again. I guess that was the young Phoenix, not the old one. Oh dear, I don't know what I'm doing. It's late. Okay, do over. The Hardbeak is a super dense location and the only super dense location in the Phoenix's deck. When you hit it on reflex, it, the monster's glare pierces the survivor's puny mind, causing them to be unable to read this card correctly and do terrible impressions, also causing explosions of pain. Turn to face the attacker and 1d10. If the result is less than the attacker's hunt XP, they suffer one brain damage for each age token they have, which is similar to the effect earlier in the deck. On a critical wound, however, you get to crack the beak, which stops the phoenix destroying armor, making many of its attacks far less dangerous. <sighs> right. Now I've got that out of my system. Um, you good we have the... Yes, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, the young phoenix was a bit of a shock, actually. He seemed to be a bit of a bit of a cockney punk compared to the old one um so the soft lower gut is next the underside is pale and soft minus two toughness to wound this location on a critical wound the phoenix's belly opens spilling a thick foul smelling ooze any adjacent survivors begin to vomit and are knocked down uh, persistent injury time leak all survivors gain age eater while this persistent injury is in play which is spend three age tokens to gain one survival and gain a brain damage so this location if you can manage to crit it gives you a tool to manipulate age tokens making it a very desirable location to crit yeah this is a really nice location i actually don't ever think we've seen this location come up in our fights because i don't remember this and I, I don't remember the age eater effect no, it's uh well, it's only one card in the entire deck, um, but also this is another. I, I think we've established that the Phoenix's um, time manipulation abilities are located inside its guts. Um, it's definitely to do with its uh, intestinal intestines and stomach and the like and liver. I just wonder what he eats now. Survivors, of course. I thought okay. he used those for cleansing. Maybe who knows. Uh, you're making me. Maybe he just. Maybe he's a nice, pleasant fellow and just nibbles on the leaves of the nightmare tree. Because you certainly never find a phoenix without a nightmare tree around. Okay. Uh, then we've got. We've only got four more hit locations to discuss. Um, the, next, we have the tiny wing hands, uh, which is an impervious location. You dislodge some of the parasites from the monster's glorious wing. Um, does nothing on a normal hit, and on a critical wound, you gain one small hand parasite's phoenix resource. Um, so this is sort of that ties into that thing I mentioned with the screaming antelope, um, where there are these little hand parasites that seem to be all over the place, and um, they they infest the phoenix as well. Little hands everywhere. Hands, hands, hands. Yes, they're little hands, and they've got tiny little tentacle things, which I guess allow them to grip as well. Then we've got the tail feathers uh, in another impervious location. The molting feathers fly through the air. On a critical wound, you get the tail feathers phoenix resource and the small feathers phoenix resource. Um, so a nice location to crit. Otherwise, not much. This is basically equivalent to the glorious mane of the white lion. And before we get to the most interesting card in the entire deck, we have the death blow card. This is the inner face. Uh, this is a minus two toughness to wound this location, and if it is the final hit location when you deal the final wound, you get a death blow. If the phoenix is killed in this location, its brain explodes. A shimmering rainbow appears in the spray of blood, revealing the secrets of the future. The survivors rejoice, and the moment changes them forever. All survivors gain one understanding, one courage, one hunt XP, 
and one weapon proficiency. So, I mean, I'm not usually going to be looking to manipulate the Phoenix and stall long enough to deal the death flow via the interface, but if I get the opportunity to do so, you can be sure as heck I'm going to take it, because that's amazing, especially the weapon proficiency. Yeah, one of our earlier games, um, we were training, and I had one of our stupidly strong survivors, and he was doing his fist and tooth training, and he was in the blind spot, and he punched it through the butt into the death blow card and killed it. So he literally punched it through its butt into its brain and exploded it. I guess that's a better thing to happen to you if you went into the Phoenix's butt. Yeah. All right, we've got one card left, and it's an absolute doozy. Josh, do you want to do the honors? Sure. Uh, we have the trap card. Time stop. All survivors are frozen in time. All survivors are doomed. They cannot use block or fighting arts, which I think this is the first trap card that we see anything about block or fighting arts on it. Um, the attacker is caught hopeless. Perform basic action... Target the attacker, all attacks rolls hit on a 2+, plus, regardless of any modifiers in play. So this makes all your evasion and everything else that you use to normally mitigate damage useless. Yeah, this is just a mean card. This is basically, I don't care how good you are, I'm going to hit you. Yeah, but uh, isn't it a wonderful image, this? You know, you, this this is one of the those cards that really demonstrates how much Poots loves anime, because this is a very anime kind of image. You can imagine everything being frozen suddenly and, like, rain falling or, or small droplets of sweat pooling and the phoenix just, langu- you know, very slowly and leisurely strolling across the... Uh, or flying across the, the field and then just utterly beating the heck out of someone and suddenly time flows back into place and there's just this horrible messed ruin of where a survivor used to be you know it's a it's a scary card as heck and you don't want this trap to trigger but my god if it's not a beautiful image absolutely it definitely contributes to the beautiful imagery and flavor that the uh, the phoenix has in all of its cards yeah and this is probably one of the hardest cards to actually gain in the game oh yeah yeah pretty straightforward there's not a lot of uh subtext for you to dig through and try and avert there it's basically no no you're gonna get hit as long as i don't roll a one yeah this is the phoenix literally going well now you know you've pushed me far enough this is what i can really do all right so that's all of the hit location cards correct correct we've got a quick dip through the resource deck and then a look at uh, deja vu and then we'll go through the uh the, the gear so you want to give us a breakdown of the resources then friend Certainly. Give me a second. Right. So uh, I haven't done my usual breakdown on this because I haven't had the chance to. But we have uh, seven hide cards, eight bone cards and nine organs. Plus, there's a few of them in there that have a few extra bits and pieces to them, bits and pieces to them. Um, uh, Of the hide cards, they're all fairly straightforward. There are three small feathers and three tail feathers, which are of some relevance um, because they used in different parts of the crafting some parts of the of the army use small feathers some use tail feathers uh, as mentioned the feather shield uses small feathers um, the mantle the feather mantle uses tail feathers um, the final hide card is its glorious mustache which uh, the, the phoenix whisker which is used for making the arc bow on the bone front um, there are one two three there's three hollow wing bones which are used in the armor. Um, there is the Phoenix finger, two of those, which are used for making the um, the finger of God spear. Um, the bird beak, which, oh, 
that used in anything? I can't remember. I don't think it is. Am I right? Yeah, I don't think it's used at all in anything. Uh, the wishbone, which is used in making the arc bow. Um, and then the black skull, which is an iron, a skull, and a bone. And it's aged to perfection. Um, this is, I think, the most desirable location. This has an extra effect if you're playing people of the skull or people of the bone, as some people call it. Um, this is a skull and an iron skull. And it, you, when playing people of the skull, you can use, normally you can only use items with the bone keyword. But any iron item which has been crafted using the black skull, you're allowed to use as well because it's also a bone. So that's definitely a big deal in that campaign. It uh, allows you to get some usually unattainable weapons for it. Or others. Right, and then finally we've got the organs. We've got uh, three musculent droppings, which we've established how you get those. You let the phoenix excrete on you. You've got the rainbow droppings, which um, is also not only just an organ, but it's a consumable. Uh, you can consume it by ar- you archive it. Roll one d10 on a seven plus, you gain a permanent plus on speed. Otherwise, your heart explodes, killing you instantly. So this is one of those um, things that probably you don't normally cons- uh, consume. Um, if I remember correctly as well, it is used in making the Robo Katana. Then we have the Phoenix Eye, which in addition to being an organ is also a scrap. The I was looking at the uh, flavor text of that one. So yeah. it says the filled with a thick metallic liquid. So that's an interesting side note. Yeah, it's a nice little bit of flavor. Apparently it's tasty as well from that other hit location. Then we got the pustules. Um, they're consumable organs. There's no effect from the consume, but uh, that the consumable does have some small effects on resources. And the aroma is very tempting. So these are the things that smell like melons. Um, the Then the final two are both one-offs. There's a the small hand parasites, which is they're just an organ. They're still wriggling. And the shimmering halo. Uh, which is curiously heavy, and this is what you use to make the hours ring, making it one of the most desirable organs in the entire deck. So there we are. Okay, so those are all of the Phoenix-specific resources. Uh, we're going to jump into the gear now, right? Well, um, let's stop in real quick. Um, I don't have my book in front of me. What's the other rewards you get for a level 3 Phoenix when you defeat? Ooh. Yeah. And what's his defeat condition also? So that's another good thing we can talk about real quick. We will do. Yeah, give me one moment. I do have my book. I just need to open it to the right page. Okay, sorry about that. Here we are. Uh, right, so the aftermath uh, for the success is the usual 100 XP weapon proficiency of eligible and rewards. Uh, the rewards, the first time the Phoenix is defeated, gain the plu- plumery settlement location survivors with age tokens gain plus one understanding and you gain rewards uh, so you gain four basic and four phoenix for level one four basic and six for level two a four basic and eight for level three and a phoenix crest um, and the phoenix crest is a very desirable strange resource also if you've innovated face painting when you defeat a level three plus phoenix you survivors paint their faces with phoenix blood you roll 1d10 and on the result of a 6+, the survivor that dealt the killing blow howls in pain. The phoenix blood burns and colours their iris yellow. They gain a permanent plus on speed and minus 1 accuracy. The defeat condition is you roll 1d10 on a 6+, a random survivor that died during the showdown finds themselves back at the settlement. They lose all their courage and understanding and must select a new name. So how do you feel about that gaining plus 1 speed, Fen? You're asking this question because you know how I feel about speed. I wouldn't trade one accuracy for one speed ever. Agreed. That seems like a pretty terrible trade-off to me. But I do love the idea of yellow irises. Very cool. Good modeling opportunities. All right. So do we want to talk a little bit about deja vu 
and setting that up, and then we'll go into the gear. Didn't you already say that? I might have. Okay, so Deja Vu New, new Game Pluses. Uh, you may reach a situation while you're playing a game of Kingdom Death where, the, where things are looking dire. Maybe you are short on survivors, uh, or your gear isn't looking good enough, um, or you're playing one of the two um, alternate campaign timelines, People of the Stars or People of the Sun, or you're trying to make green armor and things have gone wrong. So uh, I am going to dip a little bit into some expansionist spoilers. I'm not going to spoil exactly uh, what the gates are for People of the Stars and People of the Sun, just the fact that um, that there are gates. So, um, it, But in both People of the Stars and People of the Sun, when you get to Lantern Year 20+, plus, um, there is certain conditions or certain things are going to happen. Uh, now, in the case of People of the Stars, basically, you've got to achieve certain goals or you're not going to go any further and um, you're going to have a very sad, bad ending. Tough luck. Uh, you've been warned um, in the Kingdom Death way throughout the whole of the campaign by the way the game shows you. It's been trying to let you know in advance you've got to be doing this thing, you've got to be getting there. Uh, so it's you should know it's coming, um, but it really it slams home once once it, once things start occurring in accumulation. I know I'm being very vague here, um, so but it's just enough to say that you can reach a stage in a People of the Stars campaign where you're like, well, we can't win. We absolutely cannot win. It's not possible. And it happens in Lantern Year 20. You will know if you're going to be able to win or not. Um, in People of the Sun, you uh, there's there's basically the last five years of what we call a boss rush situation um, where you've got to face multiple high-level nemesis fights. And if you lose a single one of them, it's game over. That's not as heavy a spoiler because... That is spelt out to you right at the start of People of the Sun. It's printed there on the timeline. Uh, you know it's going to happen if you fail. Um, it's unlikely in People of the Sun you can be in that situation because People of the Sun, and we'll talk about when we get to it, but you become very powerful in People of the Sun. The third one, as I've said, is green armor. Now, we will discuss green armor in detail, but suffice to say there are two time-sensitive items that you need to get to complete green armor. And if you fail to get those, you can't make a complete set. So in that situation, you're going to have to either go, well, I'm not going to make it in this campaign, which, you know, that's that's loser talk. I'm not going to do that. Or it's time to reset the game. And that is where Deja Vu comes in. So what I'm kind of saying with all of this is in People of the Lantern, you're less likely to Deja Vu. But maybe once 1.5 comes out and we discover how powerful the gold smoke knight is, it may become a very viable tactic. Um, and, and so you've got to hold it in mind. It's like, is this campaign going to succeed or do I need a do over? Do I need more time? Um, do, do you know what I mean, guys? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the Lantern campaign, like a new game plus was nice when we got from the mist, but it wasn't like needed especially we didn't have any green armor or any expansions in it so it wasn't necessary to do it it was oh i got a nice big boost and this is just gonna make it easier where actually we had it happen yet again and we had the opportunity to uh, reset yet again with the guidepost the lack of guidepost with the uh, clinging mist and we elected to just keep trudging onwards because we didn't really feel the need to reset yet again it didn't really add too much to our experience yeah, yeah, you've had a bit of experience then with the guidepost. Um, yeah, I actually, as a slight aside anecdote, uh, started two weeks ago a campaign with a friend of mine playing People of the Stars. 
We got guideposted four times in a row in the first, well, it, we played seven Lantern years and, you know, we basically ended the session on Lantern year two. So that was fun. But uh, so we're going to talk about Deja Vu now. This is a conscious choice to do this. So the first decision you have to make if you're going to Deja Vu is how strong you are, because this is only one out of four legendary cards. Um it has a 25% chance of being in the level one Phoenix's deck. Um, when you get to the level two Phoenix, because top of the food chain is taken out of the deck, which does make the encounter scarier, um, this becomes more likely because you've got two uh, legendary cards in the deck. Um, and uh, that, that means you've got a 60% chance of getting it. 66%, two out of three. Um, uh, and against a uh, level three Phoenix, it's even more likely again. So generally, if you're going to Deja Vu, my recommendation is to pick the level two Phoenix. It's got the highest chance. It's not as terrifying as the level three is, um, but, you know, it's it, it's manageable. But you do have to be quite strong to manage this. If you're going to try and do it against level ones, you could it could take you at least four, maybe even more. You know, so just be aware of that. Your target choice. The next thing is setup. You cannot sensibly do deja vuing safely with normal survivors. So, Matt, Josh, do you want to take a guess what kind of survivors you take into this? Ajos. Bingo, full points. Absolutely. So the first, the, the once you've chosen you're going to start deja vuing, your very first port of call is to make ageless survivors. So you're going to have to judge how much time you have left in your timeline. Pick the guys you're going to take and get after those level one lines. I'm not going to go into the details of maxing out understanding here because we talked about that in the first podcast about the white line. So you can listen to that one if you want to learn about that. Um, just to warn you, there are some spoilers about other bits and pieces in that episode. There almost always is. And, um, you get So you get your age of survivors. The trick here, if you want to increase the chance of gaining age of survivors, is to pick the romantic... Um, uh, conviction. So conviction is it? Principle. Prin- romantic. Yeah, principle. Yeah. Uh, you want to pick the romantic principle. Uh, that does have the penalty of the bone witch turning up. Um, so you might be on a short timeline if you've done it that way, or you might have to do these windows in between the ty- the, the witch. So it can get awkward, but you know, bone witch. Just be aware of it. The reason that you pick romantic is it doubles the chances of gaining ageless survivors, which means you have to hunt less white lions, less level one white lions to succeed. So let's assume you've done that. You've got your four ageless survivors. That Now it's time to go after those phoenixes. Go after those level two phoenixes when you're, when you're confident. And basically, you play a holding pattern in the game. You're looking to trim the phoenix down, handle it very carefully. You want slow weapons. You don't want to be reckless. You want to AI manipulate to pull Deja Vu from the deck, get it safe into the discard pile, uh, making sure everyone's got age tokens when that does happen. You really want to make sure nobody ever is in the blind spot so they don't get anotoriumed because they will get completely unmade if it happens because they're going to have so many age tokens. And then you're looking to survive. So you're looking to block, you're looking to dodge, you're looking to trim away all of the dangerous cards that the Phoenix has in its AI deck and leave it with mostly harmless ones that gain age tokens, handle its basic attacks, and then eventually you get 25 age tokens and the Phoenix will reset. This is not an easy thing to do. It takes practice. It takes time. And um, it is definitely one of the more advanced things you can do. But the stuff you can do when you achieve it is incredible, like just utterly ridiculous. 
as I said, I talked about a campaign where I looped uh, four times, so I had five timelines. By the end of that, I had three full sets of green armor, and the last survivor had a full set of cyclopean. They were like they weren't all ages survivors because various events meant I couldn't take all of my original survivors all the way through. But two of them were from my very first timeline where I'd started loop. Um, and and it, it's just it kind of accumulates and gathers pace. It becomes so much easier to do it the second time because you're very strong. Um, of course, things you want to note and be aware of when you do reset the timeline in New Game Plus, you lose all your innovations. So you have to fight that that first story white line in whatever state you're in from beating the Phoenix. But you haven't got dodge. You haven't sorry. You haven't got encourage. You haven't got dash. You haven't got surge. You've only got dodge. Um, so it can be frightening if the Phoenix has really shredded you. And that, that can be an embarrassing game over. But this is something to bear in mind. Also, you've got to be willing to go through another massive trudge of a long campaign if you're going to do this. So there we are. Deja vuing, a rough primer on how or what you do and the process. And you'll figure out all the details. I'm sure you're, you're plenty smart enough. Yeah, it's definitely something we've been looking at doing uh, to one of our campaigns if the need should ever arise. And I'm actually quite excited to open up that possibility, uh, a more controllable version of Clinging Mist, essentially. This was actually something I was looking at that we could have possibly, we had the setup for it for the Twitch fight, but it would literally have been the tank trying to gain as many age tokens. And then we had the mood in play where you double your age tokens. So once we knew that was coming up, just kind of mentioning that, yeah, just kind of surge a bunch to get a, keep doubling your age and, and get the tokens. You get them on one character almost. And then trigger that, and you could do it. Um, and, chatter, yeah, chatter, and and that possibility was there on the board. And I thought about it, but it is boring as hell to watch. Um, the other thing was, I wasn't sure if it was if we already got rid of Deja Vu um, as one of the cards we did hit. So it was like we haven't been keeping track. It might be there, it might not. I don't know. Let's try to kill it. Yeah, yeah, but the. That's primarily the tool I, I use Phoenixes for, and one of the things I hope the Phoenix remains present as a quarry in all of the new expansion campaigns, I hope it's an option to put in there in some way or fashion, because having this reset ability is very powerful and very useful, and it can save a campaign that is completely and utterly doomed. All right, so did you guys want to start getting into the gear cards for the Phoenix? Looks like it, yep. So, Fen, what gear do we want to go over first? Uh, let's do the armor first. So we'll start, we'll do them in the order listed on the uh, on the plumery card from top to bottom, and then the bottom ones we'll do on the, the left and then the right ones. So we begin with the Phoenix Helm. All right, so Phoenix Armor, it's uh, four armor, uh, armor set, flammable, metal, and feather. And then uh, the affinities are, if insane, at the start of the showdown, gain plus one evasion token, and it's a puzzle blue and a green and a red. And the card itself only has the blue down affinity on it, correct? Correct. Absolutely. So with that, we have also the Phoenix Gauntlet. That is another uh, four armor to the arms. Um, no affinities on this card. Am I wrong there? That's correct. Uh, yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah. Uh, just before we do move on, it's worth the, the Phoenix Helm has a, um, a puzzle ability. Uh, puzzle blue plus green plus red. Uh, if you're insane at the start of the showdown, you gain an invasion token. That's a very powerful ability, and you definitely want to try and set that up if you're going to use Phoenix Armor. And then so continuing with the Phoenix Gauntlet, we have uh, on Depart, you gain plus one insanity. Uh, pretty straightforward card. That's just about it. Uh, the Phoenix Placard is the body armor. Uh, again, four. And this has a puzzle red, puzzle blue, puzzle green. 
and if insane, ignore the first hit each round and suffer one brain damage instead. Yeah, this is one of the most powerful abilities in the game. So that stacks up really nicely if you uh, have some insanity generating there. And that's, I mean, ignoring a hit is pretty good. And it's a, a solid armor set, too, with four to each location. Uh, I don't know what the set bonus is off the top of my head, though. It's an extra one to all hit locations and you gain the charge ability, which is you spend your movement and your activation to full move in a straight line. At the end of your movement, you activate a melee weapon and attack and you add the number of spaces you moved to your strength for this attack. Um, it's basically a bruiser armor set is the way to describe it. It's, it's good for da- ish for damage dealers, but um, there are better choices. This is a uh, what I could call a bruiser class um, of survivor, which is survivors who are pretty tanky, uh, generally fight maybe with a shield, with blood paint and a, another weapon, or perhaps a weapon, normal weapon, a shield, or two-handed weapon and a shield. Um, and this ability definitely helps. It's quite good with low-strength weapons, helping them out. Makes sense. Uh, going back to the rest of the armor, we have the Phoenix is that f- Folds. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. Folds, yeah. Yeah, it's a term for uh, um, waste armor. That's another four item, uh, four armor at that location, and that's on the part, plus one insanity. Fairly straightforward. Yeah, and straight then finally... Oh, go ahead, no, I was gonna say It's just like the um, gauntlet, but just a different location. Correct. And then we have the Phoenix Greaves, which is the four leg armor, and if insane, gain plus two movement. So stacking that with the charge ability there and gets you some nice plus strength on your attacks. Yep. Um, so this that, that has a right-facing red affinity on it as well. So pretty interesting, though. The armor itself is not able or capable of activating all of its own uh, puzzle affinities. No, this this is um, this is the whole thing that holds about the Phoenix armor. It's frankly a mess. It's very, very difficult to use correctly. Like one of the most important things is you want to get that Phoenix placard activated. If you're going Phoenix armor, that is the reason to do it. The helm's pretty good, but basically the helm and the placard combined together fine. The issue there is then you've got to try and um, join in the uh, the other bits. Uh, you've got to get that green facing right to attack onto the left side of the placard. You need a red facing left on the other. Um, and as we look at some of the Phoenix gear further down here, you'll see just how hard it is to do this. Uh, I spent a fair bit of time trying my best to make Phoenix builds work. And to be honest, uh, in the core game, I really only found Phoenix armor to be any good with an arc bow, which means you're wasting the uh, the, the charge ability you know, entirely, um, with a spear and shield, which was a pretty good build, and with a rainbow katana. And everything else was just a mess that didn't quite work right, which is a shame. But... Uh, it's still kind of worth it because the placard is so good. So uh, mentioning that, the different builds that you have, uh, one of the items that has the right-facing green affinity that you need, aside from the arc bow, is the bird bread. And oh, it's yeah. kind of an interesting one. How do you feel about the bird bread? Josh, do you want to go first? Oh, sorry, Ronky. Uh, this is an interesting It's a good tank item because it's you add one armor to all your hit locations, and then you gain the priority token. Um, and then you roll a 1d10. If you roll a 1, you lose all your survival, which isn't too bad. But to be able to grab the priority token as the tank, and if you have it set up where you're out of range for an attack, even helps more, uh, as this monster will just come after you and not do anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I, I've got to say, I think bird bread is fantastic. Um, I like items like this, utility items. The green affinity on the right is a huge part of making it amazing because this is a, uh, um, like, you know, this is a once per showdown ability. So if this didn't have an affinity on it, it would be it would be good. Don't get me wrong, it's a good activated ability, but it having that passive ability of attaching to the placard and completing 30% of the requirements you need is phenomenal. As you said, yeah, um, once per showdown, gain one to all hit locations. You get the priority target token, so you know you're a priority target for a round. Um, and there's only a 10% chance of reducing your survival to zero. If you have zero survival already, that's um, that's not even a drawback. I like this item. It's one of the ones I rate from the Phoenix quite a bit. And I like that it's a, uh, a not just a straightforward bash things or protect you item. It's a, a little bit different. So there's a couple more items that have the right green affinity to activate that placard. Uh, one of them is also the feather mantle. And the feather mantle also has a down red and a left blue affinity and has the uh, ability of when you suffer knockback, you may ignore collision with other survivors and reduce the movement by up to three spaces. So you're essentially, the, the real nice thing there is limiting your knockback by, you know, lowering it by three. Yeah. We're, um, we're sorry, but we are just getting a little out of order here, um, if you don't mind. We were going to do the um, uh, do them in the order that came on the board, but um, that's okay. We'll do the Feather Mantle now, and then we'll go on to the Shield. Just, I want to leave the Crest Crown till last, if that's okay. Gotcha. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, the, um, the Feather Mantle, I don't. I, it's the affinities on this, really. I mean, the uh, the, the static um, passive ability is okay, you know. Uh, reducing the movement by three is useful for fighting a phoenix. So if you're planning to farm the phoenix a fair bit, this is an item you seriously want to consider. So it reduces razor wing and makes it less of a problem. In fact, combined with um, with uh, with bandages, that's the word, um, you can negate a lot of the problems that the phoenix inflicts on you. So, you know, I guess the shield, bandages, feather mantle, and dash and surge, you've pretty much got every tool you need to handle the phoenix as long as you have reasonably good armor and weapons. So yeah, alright. I've just talked myself into being like, the feather mantle actually has uses beyond just affinities. So yeah, I guess this is, this is a decent weapon. Weapon? Decent item. Uh, the affinities in particular, very nice. Um, I will say though, if you do tack this into fix the Phoenix placard, it's a bit of a waste of two affinity slots. So uh, maybe this item is better used on other pieces, other armor sets. Josh, um, yeah, I like the I like the affinities on it. The abilities, <sighs> collision with other survivors very rarely happens. So the only other nice thing is is the uh, reduce the movement by three spaces. Thing is, most of the time you get knockback five. And if you have a full armor set, you get that charge ability. So you probably want to get knockback five so you can charge at full movement and attack. Yeah, so it's counterintuitive counter of the actual armor set. Yeah, I think we want to think of the feather mantle as being something you add to, say, a leather set. Yeah, a leather set would be nice because um, so, you wouldn't get bash. You just get knockback a few spaces. Um, it could be interesting with the Gorm armor set with guard ability since you can kind of move three spaces with that. Um, and it might actually help fill out some of the other affinities in that. I gotta, I gotta look at my, uh, armor set. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, um, we'll come back to it when we start looking at the expansion arms and see where the feather mantle fits in. I think it might fit in with the rolling armor as well, but, uh, we'll take a look at that. Um, so we'll go to the feather shields, are we? 
and Josh, you're our resident tank. How do you feel about this, if this was your shield? Um, the only thing I really... I mean, it's block one, which is decent. Um, and the affinities is a blue, green, and red. And you reduce any suffered brain damage by one to a minimum of one, which is an okay ability. My main issue with it is it has no strength at all. So trying to get weapon mastery with this is a pain in the butt. Um, it's a 3-7-0. So rolling three dice accuracy's eh and then you're literally just seeing if you have enough strength to hit things really hard with the with the uh the shield yeah it's high speed low accuracy low strength that's pretty much the opposite of the, my mantra in fact it is the opposite of my mantra yeah what about you matt yeah i really don't see too much of a benefit to this if it had like a higher block number i could see it being much more usable um the affinity or the ability on it when you have the affinities is nice nothing stellar in my opinion so i guess it would again yeah the the high speed low strength just seems like a way for you to uh, mill through the hit location deck which is not something you generally want to do yeah this suffers from a problem that the scrap shield also suffers from it's basically not as good as the leather shield which is just that's a big problem uh, we got four shields in the core game, um, and two of them are just completely worthless because they're sat between the incredibly efficient, probably best protective item in the entire game in the leather shield, and the amazing beacon shield. So there is... I love the way the leather shield looks. I love the idea of it. With this stat line, it's no good as an offensive shield, Um which it makes sense. I mean, it's made out of feathers, so you know you shouldn't really be able to hit things too heavily with it. Feathers and poop. But yeah, it doesn't have any armor. So even with shield specialization, it only provides one armor to all locations. And yeah, it only blocks one. I mean, perhaps the most interesting suggestion I think you made, Matt, which is what if it had block two but didn't provide any armor? That's interesting. Actually, going back thematically and thinking the fact that it's made of feathers, it'd be interesting if the shields, uh, instead of additional blocks or armors, provided you with maybe an evasion token or something to that effect. Yeah, it definitely needs something more. This weapon is lacking, very lacking. And it's a shame, because it looks great. Yeah, I imagine this is a very cool-looking armor set when it's all put together on a survivor. Yeah, it is. It's very cool. All right, up next we have the Bloom Spear. Um, it's an item Stinky Other. It has a left green and a right blue, and they're both puzzle pieces. Uh, when you are picked as a target, roll 1d10. On a 6+, plus, the monster must pick a new target if possible. I like this item. Um, hang on, sorry. Just needed to clear my throat. Uh, I like this item uh, quite a lot more than I first thought with it. Uh, it's, it's an okay puzzle ability, um, but... Uh, it's actually a 50% chance of not being attacked whenever you would be targeted. And it's got two very desirable affinities because left um, left green and right blue are, you know, they, they have a lot of uses elsewhere in building up sets and everything. It is possible using this item to build a support character who doesn't wear a single piece of armor at all because you can rely on this to basically prevent 50% of the damage dealt in your direction and use careful positioning, hiding behind terrain and the like. I don't think many people have ever played the three-man um, three man attack party and the support character literally sits out of sight, out of mind, as far away as possible and does nothing but support actions. But this, this is something that I would use in that build, and I have used in that build, and it's an interesting route to take. So not something traditionally I would be recommending, but it turns out 
there is interesting stuff you can do with it. I find yeah, it funny. I'll oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, I find it funny you said the three three man attack and one support. That's exactly how me and Matt played offline. Was there literally was just one guy that we just shared that did support. You might have a bow on him to shoot the uh, clawhead arrow with just base game, but that was about it for attacks. Um, he literally all he did was check hit location cards, AI cards, and everything else. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that's pretty much how we played, and it was fire the clawhead arrow to lower the monster's uh, evasion, and then sit back and check hit locations and AI cards. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. Uh, this is also the place where you use the small hand parasites. Um, so yeah, I don't think this is like a super high recommendation um, gear, like not high priority. But if you have the hand parasites and you have some spare bone, which often you do have spare bone by about the time you're, you're fighting the phoenix, I recommend maybe you want to try give this one a, a go. It's it, it's better than it looks. Uh, it's also not bad on uh, not just pure support characters, but on um, damage characters who aren't as heavily armored, because um, then they can deflect the attacks across to uh, the tank instead. Yeah, I can see it being very uh, beneficial on a glass cannon type build. Or you're a ranged guy, so he's if he's out of the way, he, the monster doesn't run across the board and go after him. He stays with the melee guys. Absolutely. Uh, so what is the next piece of gear we're looking at? The uh, Sonic Tom- Tomahawk. And uh, I know Fen's going to love this one. Um, on a perfect hit, hit, make one additional attack roll. Then if you get all the affinities, uh, Puzzle Red, which is a left red, two greens and a blue it gains savage and paired so and i bet you're playing with this uh paired on a survivor right <laughs> no no uh i actually did try my absolute best to make this work because there are not many axes in the core game that are particularly good i love this the artwork i love the sculpt i love the idea of this um it's just why has it got two strength why I, I don't understand. This is a, a look, look what it costs to make this. You know, it's a, a small feathers, a scrap, and a hollow wing bone. So you know that's like you've got to kill at least a level one phoenix to get this weapon, and it is so far behind everything in the power curve. The the affinities are almost impossible to achieve on a um on with phoenix armor because you need to get both reds pair um both reds connected for both weapons because you need them both to have paired i think i can't remember for sure on that i might be wrong but uh if this was four strengths i'd be fine with it you know what i'd actually be using one of these but it's just a mess um ultimately i think if you're going to use this though it's going to be on a survivor with leather armor which is a bit of a shame because the sonic tomahawk's lack of strength that's where charge comes in handy. That's where you'd want to do it. Charging the tomahawk can get that plus five, plus seven strength to your attack and really deal a massive amount of damage. This is just a weapon that has so much potential because I love axes in this game and I think they are massively underrated. But it's not really a champion of the axe. I, I doubt you guys have even used it, have you? No, we've never built one. I've never heard of anyone build and use one. Never. It's a real shame, and I hope, I really hope in 1.5, they just just increase the strength by 2. I don't think it's overpowered if it was a 3, 5, plus 4, uh, with everything else it's got going on. I mean, they can make it more expensive if they want to, but as it stands right now, this is this is just a wasted opportunity. You, you just add this with, you know, legendary lungs and everything else, so you hit all the, all the cards. 
Oh yeah, you could draw the entire deck. Why don't we put Butcher's Blood into the mix as well then while we're at it? You know. Um, yeah, it's uh, this is just a. Uh, I don't know. I'm just bummed by this card. Every time I look at it, I want to make it work, and it doesn't. Uh, nice idea. I mean, even Savage isn't that good an ability either. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on, shall we? Let's move on to another disappointment. All right, so we're gonna go to the Hollow Sword. Uh, it's a three-five-three three, uh, bone weapon, frail, paired on a perfect hit. Make one additional attack roll. So yet again, another high-speed, low-strength, not as low-strength, but low-strength weapon here. And more importantly, it's frail. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's worth noting with both of these two items that having an additional attack roll, I actually do rate. But both of these weapons are held back by their other drawbacks, basically their strength. I, I suppose I should say with a survivor with a very high strength um, could make good use of this. Uh, so that is something to, to kind of uh, this and the tomahawks. There's something to bear in mind if you have a survivor with say plus five or plus six strength or something higher than that. Uh, I don't know why a sword like this, balance-wise, should be frail though. Yeah, I mean the fact that it's three speed and paired. Uh, using it in any paired configuration is super situational, depending on the quantity of the monster's super dense locations. Because this just screams, "I'm gonna break." It also costs a hollow wing bone, two bone, and two hide to make. So that's not something you want breaking. That's five resources. Uh, so question here, Fen. Uh, if you have them paired and you hit a super dense location, does it break both of them? Uh, I believe it just bre- yeah, it just breaks the one you're attacking with because the other one, technically, all the text on it is blank. But I, it's just going from memory because there was some discussion on Board Game Geek about this. Um, and back and forth, so I can't remember for sure. This is not something I know off the top of my head, I'm afraid. Shame on me, I should have looked it up, because it is something I think about with the sword. I don't know. All right. I'll um, I'll let you know in Discord at some point in the future when I double-check the, the discussion on it. Alright, so next we have the Arc Bow. It's a ranged bow. It's a 169. Uh, slow, range 6. It's cumbersome. Um, if you get the affinities on it, um, which is a red and a green puzzle, which it has a left red and a right green and a blue affinity, you get plus two range. So this is a very interesting weapon, just generally playing as the range guy now. Um, I feel like it's been overshadowed by the Vespertine just because of the Vespertine's uh, sniper bow ability. But having this in the core game with the affinities linked up and getting plus two range, so you're running around with eight range on the bow, is really awesome. And it's also got crazy high strength for a bow. Um, one more important thing I'd like to note here, and it's kind of interesting that all of the Phoenix's ranged weapons are immensely strong, but all of its melee weapons are pitifully weak in the strength department. Yeah, the the bow's really nice. Oh, it. Most of the other um, bows in the game are pretty weak. But yeah, the strength on this bow is fantastic, and I I'd, I'd actually kind of like to try and run with it in a one in our campaign a little bit, just because. One problem I've had here and there, just because we've been going after so many uh, level two and three monsters, is not quite hitting the uh, strength, the the toughness of the monster all the time. I'm relying more on luck. So this on a low luck, higher strength character, moderate strength character, really would be fantastic. Yeah, the only issue I see with this, which is what most of the other bows do have, is their cumbersome, where the Vespertine bow is not. So... That is a really huge benefit. Once you get the uh, bow master, you ignore cumbersome, I believe, correct? 
you do, but if you have to be in Bowmaster to do that, so it's not easy. Right. It's not easy, but that's definitely where the Vespertine shines is your ability to ignore the cumbersome. But this one has a pretty solid punch behind it. And uh, moving on after this is the arrow, no? Um, we can skip over the arrow real quick um, and then go to the last two. So what's next then? Let's do the arrow real quick just because it, it pairs with the bow. Gotcha. Uh, so the arrow, it's a one speed, six plus accuracy, and 11 strength, which is... Wow. Um, slow on the arrow, but, you know, interesting. Uh, the, it's minus one movement token when you hit the monster, and it's on a hit, not on a wound. Um, that could be very handy, especially when you start getting into the monsters or around the same speed as the survivors or dealing with certain trap cards like we did with the Dung Beetle Knight, uh, where you have to be X number of spaces away to trigger it. Yeah, this is good to tie with the long range of the arc bow, so you can limit the movement so reactions are harder to hit you. I imagine this would be very fun to put with the uh, the Dragon King quiver that allows you to double up the arrows, so effectively giving the monster minus two movement tokens, so really hamstringing it and maybe even tying it along with some uh, persistent injuries that reduce monster movements that seem to be floating around there. Uh, so what is next on the list there, Josh? Or you want to, like, Fen, do you have anything that you want to say about the bow itself? I know you hate low-speed, high-strength weapons. I was waiting for you to ask. Uh, i got to say, you pretty much nailed most of this on the head, but the arc bow and the hollow point arrow are two of the standout points of the Phoenix and one of the reasons for hunting it. Um, The arc bow is phenomenal. Uh, If you're playing core campaign only, this is the endgame weapon for your bow guy. Absolutely. Um, great affinities. The fact, though, you said it's cumbersome, but it's worth noting that it's not hard to get those two affinities activated on it, and then it's a range eight weapon, and cumbersome's less of an issue. Um, so arc bow is like top tier. I think it's the third best bow in the game overall right now, um, behind the Vespertine of the Ink Blood, which are tied for first in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it's a phenomenal weapon, and the hollow point arrow, as you've rightly identified is ridiculous. And I was wondering if you'd actually seen my um, my dragon survivor I painted last week uh, with, when you mentioned with the dragon quiver and the like. I actually did not get a chance to see that. Well, uh, have a look at my Instagram later and you'll see a dragon armor survivor with Alistair's head armored, armed with a arc bow and holding a dragon shield quiver with the intent of using the hollow point arrows. When I sat down and I was playing around building phoenix armor i suddenly went "Ooh, i quite like this and um assembled together dragon armor with the arc bow and hollow point arrows so i really like both of these so question uh with the expansions i know the vespertine bow kind of outbeats it in range when you're sniping but does this have the most range out of the rest of the bows um i believe it is behind the arc bow um just give not arc bow sorry the ink blood bow just give me one moment i do have my i always have my sunstalker cars nearby okay yeah the uh ink blood bow is range seven always so the arc bow with affinities is the highest range and i think there's also a sunstalker accessory that adds plus range doesn't there uh yes uh you the quiver and sunstring with the right affinities will give your bows plus two range 
So you can get up to 10 range with the arc bow if you really wanted to with expansions. Absolutely. And of course you'd want to. Yeah, it's a great bow. It's a, it, I think it's just been overshadowed by the Vespertine um, ba- breaking all the rules for the game, basically. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we, we can talk about the Vespertine when we talk about the Flower Knight in the future. But as it stands, core game only, the arc bow is a phenomenal piece of kit. And you should build at least one when you're fighting the phoenix and it's not too expensive to make either but you do have to have the phoenix whisker and the wishbone so it's not the easiest thing to achieve yeah and those are both single items in the deck so it makes it a little bit harder yep so i see we have the hours ring up there now yeah so you guys we've actually never built one of these I was about to ask if you built one of these because I I've built many of these. This is this is one of those must make items for me with the Phoenix. Um, yes, it has the drawback that it is selfish, uh, which means you can't have any other other items in your grid. But not gaining any tokens for any reason is actually a very strong ability because bleeding tokens are a thing. Um, it has the extra effects when you're against the Phoenix, so you don't necessarily need uh, to have a... Um, if you're, if you're going to fight Phoenix, taking the risk of Deja Vu, you can use a Howard's Ring to make a replacement for one Ageless Survivor, but you do have to understand that Survivor does have a chance of just disappearing from the face of the planet. Um, and also, you can take Retired Wearers out, which is just fantastic. We, we've actually... Um, we, we suffered an unfortunate incident where during our People of the Stars campaign against the Lion Knight, where uh, my dear friend Chandy ignored all, all instruction and got our um, uh, got our bow guy killed, who was the villain at the time, and so we lost that round against the flat uh, the Lion Knight, and uh, one of our constellations promptly retired as a result of the defeat. So we went and got an hours ring so she can come out again when she wants to. So I, I really rate this item a great deal. Um, having an amazing survivor who can keep departing, keep going, is a great replacement if you haven't managed to get ageless on them. It's just the only shame is you can only have one of them. Yeah, it didn't register for me until you said it that the no tokens is no bleeding tokens as well. So that's extraordinarily yeah. powerful. Yeah, no beneficial tokens, but, you know, <laughs> that's the price you pay. Um, Question. Um, are there nope. any other selfish items in the game, in base game at least? Not that I know of. I don't believe so at all. Certainly not in the base game. I don't think any other selfish ones have been released yet. Maybe the hours ring is so selfish that no other ones actually exist anywhere. We'll have to see in the next wave of expansions. All right, and then we left the last one for you, Fen, because I know it's one of your favorites. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, yeah, as Chats just pointed out, um, no priority token either, so you don't ever get the priority token. That is interesting. Ring. Yeah, yeah. It'll probably have more effects when the new expansion comes out, if any of the monsters use tokens for any effects either, so it's going to be great. But yes, yes, Crest Crown, lovely jubbly. So um, the Crest Crown can only be made via a Phoenix Crest and six organs, so you have to kill a level 3 Phoenix to get this. But it has one of the most unique abilities in the game. First of all, as you can see, it's got a lovely set of affinities. I mean, that is, there's not many items that have four affinities, and there's even less that have four affinities in different colors. Uh, uh, you know, you have to go quite far to find other items that match this for joining up unusual grids. It's, it's great. 
it has a nice replacement ability to give you insanity and survival, giving it a good combo with the um, Phoenix set as a whole. This actually, uh, if you do put it onto the Phoenix armor grid, what this does is it sits above the placard and then the helm sits above it. So this will sit right in the middle of the grid and it provides so many extra affinities that it's just it's unheard of. It's, it's amazing. Um, but the main reason I really rate this is the activated ability, which if you're insane, which you're normally going to be if you're using the Crest Crown, you can reshuffle the hit location deck. This has a lot of implications you normally wouldn't really think about, but the main one is that situation where you're playing the slow and safe game. You've got the um, got the capsize circler up, and you've discovered the trap is somewhere near the top of the deck. Well, all of a sudden, the crest crown will let you shuffle that away and get rid of it. Um, there are other combos that I do with the expansion stuff, and I will come back to the crest crown and talk about it some more. But basically. This is an item that does something that no other item in the game does. Effectively, it allows you to, whenever you choose, make every single monster in the game, like the Butcher, a fast target, and have a shuffle. And the implications of it, you have to think about them before they all sort of come forward. Uh, not many people, I think, have ever used this item, though, because, I mean, level 3 Phoenix, I've only killed two of those. And, I, I don't, you know, you guys died against it, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's a difficult one to get, but it is is absolutely worth it. I do find it unusual that it's not a head accessory. Um, bit weird. Well, you don't but, have to wear it around your head. You could wear it somewhere else. Uh, I guess maybe on your butt. That would fit with the phoenix. That's what I thought. If you turn it upside down, uh, yeah, you could wear that on your butt. It would um, protect your uh, anal torium. It looks like a really, or a very bad pair of glasses. But yes. Um, the Crest Crown is is one of those items that I like because it does something unusual and different, and there's sort of applications that might be fringe a lot of the time, um, but it has such a good set of affinities and such a good puzzle piece passive ability that it's, it's worth it. And um, it is something that I generally want to have in a campaign, um, but quite hard to get before Lantern Year 20. Uh, this might become more desirable with all the expansion monsters pushing the time back. And who knows? I mean, this might become... Uh, I'm definitely taking one of these in when the first time I fight the Ivory Dragon, for sure. Um, and just to make note, I don't know if we mentioned what the uh, affinities are. Um, it's a blue up and down, a left red, and a right green. And it has uh, puzzles for the two blue ones and the red. And when you depart, you gain plus one insanity and plus one survival for every blue affinity you have. Yeah, it's great. So this is also a fantastic item to have when you're playing with Josh because he loves to shuffle the hit location deck and put the trap card right on top. Oh well, you'd need to shuffle then instead. Uh, but no, it's actually very handy too if you're playing and uh, the trap card comes up earlier than you anticipated and you're doing the slow and steady route where you planned on burying the trap card with the uh, cat's eye circlet and it just pops up way too early, and you don't want to dedicate one survivor survivor solely for burial of the trap card. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, that's it. We've been through the gear, and uh, just to kind of provide a summary for people, the armor is okay, um, but held back a bit by lacking in affinities on the gauntlets and the folds. Um, the Phoenix Placard has one of the most amazing abilities in the game, which allows you, when you're insane, to ignore the first hit you take each round. Uh, incredible. It's so good that when we talk about some of the builds with the expansions, I'll be coming back to this to talk about it because it's 
it's a key part of hybrid sets um not exclusive hybrid sets like pre-designed ones but the build it your own this is the ability that's so good it's worth splashing into armor uh the other highlights would be the bloom spear is very interesting to use for um non-tanking characters the arc bow is a phenomenal piece of kit that everybody should try at some point hollow point arrows are ridiculous um, the feather mantle has more applications than we thought when we realized until we started talking about it. Bird bread is great. The hours ring is amazing and the crest crown is fantastic. So overall, apart from the armor being a bit lackluster, like, you know, just lacking that final tweak to to bring it on par with some of the other stuff that you'd want. Um, Phoenix gear is very easy to recommend overall. Absolutely. And is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on before we wrap it up for this evening? I think that's it. Fan, you have anything? Uh, no, I think I've uh, pretty much exhausted everything. We've been talking about the Phoenix for a lot longer than I thought we would be. Yes, it definitely turned out to be a real interesting monster once you start digging past the initial layers of it. Uh, it's got some depth to it for sure, and as we said a couple times before, uh, thematically it's really awesome, and it's it seems to be the poster child for the core game as well. I should certainly say so, young man. I'm certainly a very interesting creature. And uh, wh- where am I again? What am I doing? Just uh, check your excretions there, old man Phoenix. What? Are, are you calling me poop boy? Why okay. I should shit on you. <laughs> and with that, uh, thank you all for joining us for this presentation of Great Game Hunters. Uh, We will be doing our next broadcast in two weeks. Uh, That will be at 6 p.m. Eastern time for the live broadcast on our Twitch channel. And we are going to be discussing, what was it, the Kingsman, Fen? Yes, the Kingsman and the Hand. Fantastic. So we're going to be discussing those nemeses. So please follow us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, uh, we are Twist Gaming. That's the host channel here. And other than that, we really hope you guys tune in for all of our future Great Game Hunter podcasts. Uh, is there anything else before we sign off that you guys wanted to add? Uh, quick shout out to Fen. Um, and he has his Instagram and his Patreon for all his pain and stuff. So I'm going to make sure I, I do that. Your Instagram is Fenzy. Uh, you, you pronounce it Fen because I'm going to screw this up. Fen Saunig. Alright, see? Yeah, I was definitely going to screw that up. Alright, and Fen does phenomenal work on the painting of the minis, so go check him out. Um, Other than that, please join us for our future broadcasts, and thank you for joining us this evening. This is Twist Gaming with the Great Game Hunters podcast, signing off. I'm Matt. I'm Josh. And I'm Old Man Phoenix, and get off my lawn! Uh, Good night, everyone. Go on, shoo! Go away! Good night.